When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I hope you had a beautiful Easter, an incredible conference weekend. Uh, I'm sorry that the video from last week took me so long to get done and get it out uh, for you. So you may be playing catch up with sections 30 through 36. Uh, I know they were long as well, seven revelations with a lot of historical context and trying to understand the cast of characters and so on. Uh, but it was an, a great experience for me to be able to teach those great missionary principles. Personally, I do feel a massive weight uh, off the shoulders as I was able to hit send on my, at least I consider it a final draft. We'll see what my advisor says uh, as far as my dissertation is concerned. And so I'm uh, grateful to be able to have that uh, off my back for a little while at least and be able to dive back into the scriptures with all of you. There was something I noticed though was as I was video editing last week that there was a verse of scripture. I, I think I covered every single verse in those seven revelations except one. Uh, and as I was going through, I realized that for some oversight, I just happened to skip section 31, verse 4. And usually that wouldn't be a big deal, but there was some, there's a word in 31.4 that is surprising. If you go back there with me real quick, and then we'll pick up where we left off and, and dive into this week's material. But in section 31, verse 4, Thomas B. Marsh is called on this mission, told to go declare the things which have been revealed to my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. Uh, and then listen to this and see if you can fill in the blank without peeking. You shall begin to preach from this time forth, yea, to reap in the field which is white, all ready to, and then fill in the blank. Now, I imagine all of you thought harvest, because that's what we're used to. In section 4 and 6 and 11 and 14, 15, see, I mean, there's so many of those early revelations as missionaries are being called. The field is white, all ready to harvest, so go thrust in your sickle. What, what amazes me about section 31's version of that, and then followed up closely, with a phrase that we did talk about last week in section 33. I call this the ever-whitening field. Because if the field is white already to harvest all the way back in section 4, even before the church is even organized, by the time you get to section 31, and the church is a whole five months old by now, little toddler, uh, Martin, uh, or Thomas B. Marsh is told this, to reap in the field which is white already to be burned. Now that, that should surprise us. I mean, you don't burn the field that's about to be harvested, but you do burn it after the harvest is over. When all that's left is the tares that are out there, then might as well just torch the field. Not only will it clear the ground now, but it'll help prepare the ground for next year's planting season. That's the way the allegory of the olive tree ends in Jacob chapter 6, after 5 comes to an end. So if we didn't already have a sense of urgency from all of those reminders that the field was white already to be harvested, well, here it's already, can, can we burn this thing already? Is the harvest past? I mean, a field white to be harvested? Oh, that was so 1829. Here we are, late 1830. Let's burn this thing. You get this sense of, of how quickly the Lord wants to come. Behold, I come quickly. How many times did he tell us that already? Or like we saw in section 33, where does he say it? Verse 3, 
the field is white already to harvest, so we, don't worry. It's, we want to burn, but we're still harvesting. But it is the 11th hour and the last time that I call laborers into my vineyard. It's go time as far as the Lord is concerned. And so I hope that we're going. We'll get that same sense of urgency in today's material as we begin with section 37, which is such a short little four-verse revelation. But the timing of it and what it's asking them to do really does move in that uh, full speed ahead kind of direction. If you remember where we ended last week, at the end of section 36, verse 8, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wherefore gird up your loins, which in and of itself is a metaphor for urgency. We don't want to trip up over our long robes, so we, we pull the back end forward and tuck it into our, into our belt, so we are wearing MC Hammer parachute pants now, and now I can go work. I can go run. So gird up your loins, and I will suddenly come. So again, that sense of suddenness, of, of quickness, and suddenly come to my temple. So that's where, we're, that's where we left off last week, that the Lord has his temple in mind already. That's the first time that that word has been used in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, in section 37, there will be another word that has been, or at least not a concept, that has been repeated several times already. But I don't know if the saints fully understood what the Lord meant by it. And the word is gather. Here, we're going to do, he's, the Lord is going to use the word assemble. And he's going to get to that later on in the Revelation. But the way he begins it, to me, it's, it's almost comical. Section 37, verse 1. Behold, I say unto you, that it is not expedient in me that ye should translate any more until ye shall go to the Ohio, and this because of the enemy and for your sakes. Now, that seems like a very abrupt beginning. There's not the usual introduction of this is the Lord and I'm speaking to you, Joseph. He doesn't even introduce it in the way that we would expect it to be introduced. Again, this, this is the first revelation where the saints are told, you're going to go to Ohio. You're going to pick up and you're going to move. But this idea of, it's not expedient in me to translate anymore until you get there. If you remember section 35, when Sidney Rigdon is called to assist as Joseph's scribe for the Joseph Smith translation, they've been at work on that. And the way the Lord begins this revelation, this monumental task of pick up the headquarters of the church and shift it to Northeast Ohio. Instead, he just says, you know, Joseph and Sydney, uh, why don't you put the pens down for a little while and not translate any, don't work anymore on the JST until you're in Ohio. And you picture the, the Joseph and Sydney going, wait, 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 huh? What, what did you say about Ohio? I, I understood to, to not, don't translate anymore, but what are you talking about? Go to the Ohio. Talk about understated to couch this massive movement revelation in just a, a gentle you know, piece of instruction. Like, well, why don't you pause the work on the JST for a second? Have you ever seen people, it seems like this is a popular way to announce somebody's pregnancy these days, where they'll say something uh, that's completely unrelated, it seems, and then it'll be kind of an offhand hint that the other person is supposed to go like, wait, wait, what did you just say? It's like someone, you know, a family vacation is planned to Disneyland or something. And they say, you know, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to ride all the rides since they don't let pregnant women on them. And, th and then, wait, wait, wait you're, you're pregnant? Or you picture some 18-year-old young man and the, his friends are making plans and he says, yeah, sounds like a blast. I just don't think I'm going to be able to make it since I'll be on my mission. And it's like, wait, what? You're, on, you're going on a mission? And in the same vein, it's as if here the Lord is saying, you know, Joseph and Sidney, you're not going to have a whole lot of time to work on the JST since you're going to be moving to Ohio. Anyway, and they're like, wait, wait, we're moving to Ohio? And the Lord's like, well, yeah, of course. Didn't you see that coming? I mean, after all, as he says at the end of verse 1, it's because of the enemy and for your sakes. Everywhere you've set up camp, 
you, persecution has followed you. Palmyra, Harmony, Fayette, you name it. Well, because of the enemy and for your sake, it's interesting that there's going to be both halves of this whole. That there's a, a negative that you're trying to escape, but there's also a positive that you're trying to embrace. The Lord gets as much mileage as he can out of these commandments. So let's eliminate the negative. Let's add the positive. This whole move is, is for your benefit. Now before you go, verse 2, again I say unto you that ye shall not go until, so here's your to-do list, preach my gospel in those parts, strengthen up the church, whithersoever it is found, especially in Colesville, for behold they pray unto me in much faith. That last line, by the way, is a great little lesson on prayer. That God is aware of those who are praying to him, especially those who are praying in much faith. We'll see more of these Colesville saints later on. But they're wanting to be strengthened. They're, they're going vertically with their request. Heavenly Father, please strengthen us. The Lord then kind of triang triangulates here and sends the message to Joseph Smith. You need to now move horizontally and to be able to meet the needs of the saints in Colesville. So yes, the ultimate goal is to get to Ohio. But in the meantime, preach the gospel and strengthen the church. We're already seeing the, the missions of the church begin to unfold, right? Perfect the saints, strengthen the church, and proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel in these parts. Interesting, by the way, that here the Lord all kind of goes full disclosure and lets Joseph know one of the reasons you need to help the saints in Colesville is because they're asking for that. I think so often the Lord leaves off the last part, and we simply have an impression that I should call someone or visit someone or go do a good deed for such and such a person. What amazes me is how often, after the fact, you find out that the person has been praying for just such a blessing. I wonder if the Lord is, is trying our, our faith or testing our obedience, perhaps. I'm not going to tell you that you are answering someone's prayer right now. Here he does for Joseph Smith. But often for us, may I just leave a gentle impression. I know that this will be an answer to their prayer. They will know that this is an answer to their prayer. But you just need to act on that positive impression. Please don't make me spell every detail out. Here's the nudge. Go act on it. Then in verse 3, we see this idea of the gathering. Again, a commandment I give unto the church, that it is expedient in me that they should assemble together at the Ohio against the time that my servant Oliver Cowdery shall return unto them. You see, Oliver and the rest of the, the members of that Lamanite mission, they're still out there. Remember, we talked about this last week, that when they leave to go down to Missouri, they pass through Kirtland, Ohio on the way. Parley P. Pratt knows Sidney Rigdon, leaves him a copy of the Book of Mormon, and then they go, after having taught them and baptized a lot of members first. But then they're heading off to what they thought was the real mission. Let's get down to Missouri and, and teach, teach the Lamanites. But what they just left behind was a flourishing branch of the church in Northeast Ohio. Meanwhile, Sidney Rigdon, who is their leader, ends up going up to New York to be able to meet Joseph Smith. That's when we get section 35 and his call to act as scribe for the JST. He and Joseph Smith hit it off beautifully, and that's when they received this revelation to move to Ohio. Like, like it says there, Oliver Cowdery and his companions are there in Missouri this whole time. Uh, they're the old joke about you're on your mission and your parents move. So you come home and your homecoming is to a room full of strangers. That's kind of going to be what it's like for Oliver Cowdery and his companions. By the time you come back from your mission, church headquarters has moved. We're not going back to New York. We're going to Ohio. And that word there is assemble. Assemble together at, it's always phrased as the Ohio. 
which has more to do with the geography than simply the, the state lines. Yeah, but to get to assemble there, this is the sense of gathering. And if it hasn't dawned on them already, now it becomes crystal clear that the gathering is a literal, physical, geographical kind of thing. See, the first time the word gathering is used in the Doctrine and Covenants is back in section 10. And it talks about a hen gathering her chickens. So that's just a metaphor. At least they could take it as that. The Lord is trying to protect us, bring us closer to Him, spiritually speaking. Then in section 27, we see the word gathering again. But that time is also figurative as it describes the, the dispensation of the fullness of times, which will gather together in one all things in Christ. You see the, the word repeated four times in section 29, which is that second coming signs of the times section. So now we're starting to see gathering in the context of the second coming. But even there, they might be wondering, so are we just, are we talking about a, a spiritual gathering to God? Gathering as a hen, uh, gather for chickens is in that section. The righteous being gathered at my right hand is in that section. But again, that seems more like judgment day and metaphorical or figurative. But in section 29, it also starts being a little more clear that this is geographical when it says that you are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. Now, you can still kind of hedge your bets on that and go, well, I am gathering them spiritually back to God wherever they happen to be. These missionaries are being sent out. I'll leave a copy of the Book of Mormon. I'll bless these people. I'll teach them. I'll even baptize them, but then leave them there. I mean, it's their home. It's their community. It's where they live. I have simply gathered them to God. But then it becomes crystal clear when section 29 says, they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land. You can picture the saints going, oh, geographical gathering. No wonder in section 31, Thomas B. Marsh is told to go and strengthen and prepare the people for the time when they shall be gathered. If that gathering was just spiritually to God, well, that's already happened. That's why, I mean, they're willing to listen to me at all. They've been gathered to God. And then again, to, to Thomas, well, yeah, that's good. You've gathered them to me spiritually. Well, now you need to strengthen and prepare them for the day when they will be gathered physically as well. There needs to be a gathered community of saints. There's something, something about critical mass of having enough members together in close proximity that you can actually live the gospel uh, with one another. This is the horizontal to connect to the vertical. This is the, the religion to go along with the spirituality. The second great commandment, love your neighbor. In the midst of the first great commandment, love your Father in heaven. Now the Lord realizes this is, this is massive. It's one thing to change your life. It's another thing to change your location. And all of the work that goes into that, especially in the 1830s, this is not a matter of call up the local movers or go rent a U-Haul. This, this is leave probably a farm that you, the forest you cleared and a, a house that you built and, and fields that you planted and to pick up and move somewhere else, load up whatever you can fit in your wagon and, and, and pick up and go to, to uncleared forests and untamed wilderness and, and not a house to be able to move into. Moving was a massive undertaking in the 19th century. And so notice how the Lord couches this command. Going from verse 3 to verse 4, he starts by calling it a commandment. And so it is. This, is. this is my command, my expectation. But then he softens it just a little and says, it is expedient in me. So expedient still gives this sense of this is really what needs to happen. It's expedient. 
but it's a little softer language than a commandment I give you, thou shalt move. Now, it's expedient in me. Then, verse 4, let's go even softer. Behold, here is wisdom. And then softer still. And let every man choose for himself until I come. Even so, amen. Now, what we just saw in two short verses, in some ways, is the big picture evolution throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Early on, the Lord is, is, is clear, and often it's, thus saith the Lord, and here's the commandments, and here's how it's supposed to be. Give it enough time, and he'll start using words like, it is expedient in me. It's a little softer. Give it some more time, and often he'll couch his commandments in words like, it is wisdom in me. I mean, I am omniscient. I've got a good track record here. You might want to trust me on this. I think it's a good idea, but, I mean, who am I? I'm just saying. And eventually, he'll say things like, it mattereth not. You cannot go amiss. Like, it's totally up to you. Over, overall, through the entire process, it's still let every man and woman choose for him or herself. Agency underwrites this entire thing. But I do love to watch the gradual, kind of, I'll put it this way, as we're proving contraries, like we always do. Elder McConkie once gave a talk called Agency or Inspiration. That's a great contrary right there. How much of what I'm supposed to do in life is agency, where it's all up to me? And how much is, is inspiration? Well, this is the Lord telling me what to do. And what's beautiful in the Doctrine and Covenants is as time passes, the center of gravity begins to shift from inspiration towards agency. From commandment to expedience to wisdom to up to you. And throughout it all, you've got to learn to choose. I mean, I'll admit, Satan's plan did have something going for it. That's, why do you think a third of the hosts of heaven fell for it? It was, the, it was the loss of, of risk. I promise you're going to get home because agency is a gamble. And that was the one thing, that risk factor was the one thing that the adversary was hoping to leverage against us. Risk leads to fear and fear leads to poor choices often. You give them their agency, Father, and they're going to blow this thing. Well, the Lord is giving us our agency from the beginning, but he's trying to educate us in how to use it. So early on, I command you to exercise your agency in this way. I can't force you, but it is a commandment. Uh, you're, okay, you're learning. You're following instruction. You're obeying. How about this? This is expedient. It's really important that these kinds of things happen. Are you willing to do those? Oh, of course. You'd never lead, led me astray when it came to commandments. So even just suggestions are good enough for me. Well, how about just, I think this is a good idea. Oh, let me think about that too and see if I agree. Oh, yeah. I do trust your omniscience. I agree with your wisdom. Sounds like wisdom to me as well. But I'm exercising a greater amount of agency here in honoring the inspiration that's come. And eventually, hopefully, we're at a point where God truly can leave so many things up to us, knowing that it'll be wisdom in us also. We will use our agency wisely. And with that, the Lord lets them choose. Now, before we leave section 37, though, it is worth looking up at the section heading and seeing the date. This is December of 1830. Uh, what do you think is the worst time to move in the 1800s? I mean, as Latter-day Saints, 
we're experts when it comes to moving, okay? I've always joked that the Lord should have been crystal clear and just said it in section 20. Amidst all of those responsibilities for the different quorums of the priesthood, he should, just should have said, and elders help people move. I mean, that's just what you're going to do, okay? Uh, many a Saturday morning in, in at the life of an elders quorum is spent helping people move. To the point that even in Utah here, I've seen, I've seen bumper stickers on the back of people's pickup trucks that say, this, belongs, this truck belongs to me, not to the elders quorum. Uh, I mean, it's an inside joke for Latter-day Saints, but we understand it. Well, if you've ever helped on a move in the middle of the winter, that can be tricky business. If the snow is falling or if it's a rainstorm, I mean, weather can wreak havoc on a move. And especially if it's an 1800s move, when you're moving in, not to a new home, but just to a new, oh, chunk of ground. What will I find when I get there? Will I be freezing? Will I have fine food to eat since I won't be able to, to plant any crops? It's so interesting that the Lord in some ways picks the absolute least convenient time. I mean, he does that with missionaries. Can I have 18 to 24 months of your life? And we're like, sure. How does like 80 to 82 sound? Uh, I probably won't be doing much with those years anyway. <laughs> You're welcome to them. And the Lord's like, oh, I'm touched. I'm grateful that you'd be willing. How about 18 and 19 or 19 and 20? And we're going, are you kidding? Those are the golden years, the real ones, not the golden years laced with lead. Uh, the ones I've got energy and I can do anything I want. This is when I'm figuring out my college life or work or dating or, or marriage and courtship, you name it. And the Lord's like, oh, I know. That's why I'm asking for it. The commonly used phrase is that your mission is the best two years. And it ends up being that as far as this time of incredible growth for you. But I wonder if another way of taking that phrase is the Lord is asking for your best two years. I want the firstling of your flock. I want the, the most pristine of your 10%. I want the best possible sacrifice that you can give me. And sometimes when it's not a matter of the quality of, of contribution, it can be the, the level of sacrifice based on inconvenience. The Lord is an inconvenient Messiah, as has been said. And sometimes that inconvenience is manifest through timing when he asks us to do certain things. Oh, at any, can we do this in the spring? Can we do it in the summer? Well, why don't you just pick up and start going? I did say, after all, at the beginning of this little revelation, that it's because of the enemy and for your sake. I know this sounds like a sacrifice. I'm actually doing you a favor. Sacrifice always works that way. Now, it's not long thereafter that section 38 is given at a conference of the church. The saints are wondering, okay, why are we going to Ohio? Again, it was such an offhand statement from the Lord, but you picture all these saints going, I, I could, right now I could care less about the, the, the cessation of the Joseph Smith translation, okay? Uh, you're asking us to move. Can you please give us some more details about that? And so he does. But rather than start in verse 1, I want to jump ahead and start in verse 32, because this is really going to start answering the question. Why is it that we're being asked to assemble at the Ohio? Section 38, verse 32. Wherefore, for this cause, I gave unto you the commandment that you should go to the Ohio. So you see how we're picking up this same train of thought? And here's the reasons why. It's twofold. Number one, there I will give unto you my law. And two, there you shall be endowed with power from on high. 
Now, even with that, the saints aren't going to fully know what he's talking about. But hopefully we do. I, 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 for your sake and to escape the enemy, I'm going to send you, assemble, gather to, the, to Ohio, because two things are going to happen there that will be for your sake, that will help you to escape the power of the enemy. One will be my law. We're going to see it in section 42 next week. But specifically, I, I need to give you my law of consecration. And the second half, endowed with power from on high, well, that's temple language for us. By the way, it's very powerful scriptural language for the temple. To me, I, it, I don't know, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way when people talk about their endowment as if it was some kind of a library book. When they say, oh, I'm going to take out my endowment. And I just kind of cringe at that language, like, Ugh. It's, again, we're not checking it out. We're not taking out our endowment. Sometimes we say, I'm getting my endowment. Well, again, to get it, it just, I don't know, it cheapens what exactly what is happening there. I prefer the scriptural language. What's happening when you go through the temple for the first time? I am being endowed with power from on high. An endowment. A gift that keeps on giving. That's what an endowment is. Ask a university, for example, when, when they receive a huge contribution from some wealthy donor for an endowed chair in some academic discipline. An endowment then is, here's this huge uh, gift, and you're never actually going to touch the gift itself. It will just be producing enough uh, interest that you can pay for the the salary of the professor and, and any uh, teaching assistance or research funds or whatever is needed simply on the interest of the initial gift that I gave you. An endowment is a gift that keeps on giving. It never runs out. And the endowment that God is giving us in the temple is an endowment of power from on high. An initial investment in us as God fills us with his power and his grace. But with that endowment of power from on high, it continually gives us more and more power the more that we use it. You see, Joseph and Sidney and all the saints, why you need to leave New York? The greatest blessings, more than you can possibly imagine, are waiting for you in Ohio. It is there that you will build the first temple of this dispensation, where you will begin to receive this endowment of power from on high. And it is there that you will learn and live the law of consecration. Both of those will be for your sake. And in an interesting way, they will be because of the enemy. Remember those two phrases that started section 37. Now with that thought in mind of, okay, I can see how power would benefit me. And uh, Consecration, I'm not totally sure how that's going to benefit me, especially if I end up having more to give than to receive. We'll talk more about that as we go on. But the enemy side of things, I think, would, would intrigue people. What, what do you mean by that? Well, go back just a few verses here in section 38. What he says in 32, or section 38, verse 32, Wherefore, for this cause I gave unto you the commandment. See, he's trying to set this up for the saints so they understand. Now do you understand why I'm telling you to pick up and move? Why you've got to gather together? Well, wherefore, for this cause, in this particular part, rewind a few verses up to verse 28. I promise this will all make sense as we go back and start in verse 1 and start working through the revelation the way they normally would. Start at the beginning and get to the end. But I need you to see from the get-go, this is what the Lord is, is building up to. And everything we're going to read starting in verse 1 is trying to get us to this point where the saints will understand, ah, that's why we need to pick up and move. 
Now, this is not an inconvenient request from our inconvenient Messiah. This is a blessing that he has in store for us. And he's asking us to do this now. We'll see it starting here in verse 28. Again, I say unto you that the enemy, so there's that word that they would have remembered from section 37, the enemy in the secret chambers seeketh your lives. This really will be a life and death kind of a proposition. Perhaps physically, definitely spiritually. You almost get a sense of, of secret combinations from the Book of Mormon, where here these enemies are lurking in secret chambers, plotting the destruction of the saints. Now, what could he be referring to? We'll see. Verse 29, Ye hear of wars in far countries, and you say that there will soon be great wars in far countries. And that was true. In this exact time period, there was a Greek war of independence going on, Spanish attempts to reconquer Mexico, there was a war between Russia and Turkey, revolution in France, uh, another revolution in Belgium. The French had just conquered Algeria. I mean, there's all kinds of, like, this, like I said, if you're getting the, the news trickling in from across the ocean, you're hearing of wars and rumors of wars all over. Signs of the times, anyone? Well, back in verse 29, yes, you hear all that. And, you, and it seems an ocean away. But how does the verse end? but ye know not the hearts of men in your own land. Do you have any idea what's going on right around you? The French invasion of Algeria isn't going to do much for you. Even the Spaniards trying to reconquer Mexico is still a good ways away. But right here, we're very close. In your own land, there are those whose hearts are corrupted to the point that they are the ones in secret chambers seeking your lives. Now, verse 30 I tell you these things because of your prayers. Remember, we learned that back in section 37. Those wonderful saints in Colesville praying for strength and the Lord responding by giving his prophet inspiration on what to do. Well, he's doing the same thing now. As we are praying for understanding, praying for strength, praying to be prepared for the second coming, do we sense that the Lord is giving direction to his servants? his prophets and apostles, so that we can be prepared for whatever is coming. I hope our ears were attuned to that as we listen to General Conference. I hope our eyes are attuned to it as we, as we are able to read and study those words. So back to verse 30, if he's telling us this because of our prayers, wherefore, so here's the answer, what are you going to do with it? Treasure up wisdom in your bosoms. Remember JST, that's where the Lord keeps his truth, written on the fleshy tables of his heart. Treasure it up, feast upon it, make it a part of you, lest the wickedness of men reveal these things unto you by their wickedness in a manner which shall speak in your ears with a voice louder than that which shall shake the earth. Man, that, that's scary. I'll admit the still small voice can sometimes be difficult to detect, but I would much rather have to strain my ears to hear that those gentle invitations than to, to, to wait until it becomes so brutally obvious that there is no escaping the news that God was trying to give me far more gently a long time before. Remember we saw that last week? That I've, I'm trying to give all of you faithful saints the signs of the times so that you can prepare. What will the one sign be given to a wicked world? The destruction of Babylon. That it's going to be the obvious, the earth-shaking, loud-sounding, crystal-clear voice of a trump, really. It's too late for me. Well, no wonder the Lord is trying to proceed that with 
the voice of crying repentance, even a voice of, of that kind of a trump, loud and clear, and trying to proceed that for each of us with the gentle invitation for us to come unto him, to repent of our sins, to make covenants, and then prepare ourselves so that we can prepare the rest of the world. This is God's wisdom. Are we treasuring it up in our bosom and preparing to act upon it? Then in verse 31, that ye might escape the power of the enemy, the ones that are in secret chambers seeking your lives, in order to escape that power, and be gathered unto me, there's that important word, to be gathered unto me a righteous people without spot and blameless, wherefore for this cause. So now do we understand how the Lord is leading into this? I promise this whole adventure is for your own good. It's for your sake. It's to escape the enemy. I need you in Ohio. And not just because, well, there's dangerous people in New York that are plotting persecution. Yes, there's a lot of that going on. But this is a far bigger picture than just localized opposition. There are things that need to happen within you. It, as we saw in 31, you've got to become a righteous people. Without spot, blameless. And how am I going to do that? How am I going to get you to that condition? There will be a law of consecration that will purify you. And there will be a temple built that will endow you with power from on high. That's how you become blameless and spotless. That's why you are gathering together. Saints scattered all over creation can't build a temple. You need a critical mass. And as Joseph Smith himself will say, what was the purpose of God gathering his people in any age? It was always to be able to build temples. A tabernacle in the wilderness, a, a temple in Jerusalem. Well, we're going to have temples in the land again, but it will require a gathered community of blameless, spotless, consecrated saints ready to do anything for the Lord. Now are we starting to get a hint why the Lord might have timed this commandment at such an inconvenient time? Oh, I'm just trying to get you up to speed and ready to make harder sacrifices later on. This is, believe me, this is just the beginning of the sacrifices I'm asking of you. But, as Joseph Smith would say later, and this is one of my favorite quotations for, of his, any religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. What a powerful statement. It's not that the Lord is, is seeking our stuff. He doesn't care. We'll see more of that later. But he wants our faith. And what better way to help develop our faith than to ask us to do hard things. Sacrifice produces the power of faith. And he's asking them to sacrifice right here in December and January, the winter of 1830 to 31. Because once you get to Ohio, what will I ask you to do? Build a temple. That will require an incredible amount of sacrifice on your part. There you will begin living the law of consecration, which will require an incredible amount of sacrifice on your part. All of these sacrifices will have the power to produce faith in you. And it's faith that will help you become spotless and blameless. It is faith that will protect and preserve you against whatever enemies in any secret chambers might have up their sleeve. You see, this is such a bigger deal than just that there's some, some mean people in the neighborhood. 
This is no matter what you face in life, no matter what enemies are plotting in their secret chambers, you'll be able to handle it. Safely protected behind your shield of faith. Faith forged by power and power that was produced by sacrifice. That's what I'm trying to get you to accomplish here. That's why the last line of verse 30, which I skipped, is so important in all of this. If ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. That is such a powerful phrase. I, you hear it often quoted out of context, which is fine, because that's a principle that will stand on its own at any time or in any place, any circumstance. But to see it in context, now do you understand what the Lord is getting at? If you are prepared, you shall not fear. Well, what did I have to fear? Well, secret uh, enemies in secret chambers seeking your life. Yes, you hear of wars and rumors of wars in distant countries. Do you have any idea what's going on right here around you? You are surrounded by wickedness. An untoward generation, we were told last week. A perverse generation, we were told last week. None doing good except those who are prepared for the fullness of the gospel, we learned last week. You see what you're up against, no matter where you happen to be living in the world? But if you're prepared, there's nothing to fear. You got this. And what kind of preparation are we talking about more than anything? A spiritual preparation that will come as we learn to live God's law, the law of consecration, and as we are endowed with power from on high. The temple, the covenants that we make there, and the blessings and promises we receive there, that is what prepares us. And if we are prepared with that, then there is nothing to fear. So hopefully by now the saints are starting to get it. Ah, okay. Yeah, maybe this isn't such a, a bad idea after all, to pick up and leave in the dead of winter. Let's get to Ohio as quick as we can. Now with all of this in mind, go back to the beginning of section 38 and try to read the beginning with the end in mind. I've said this before, that often in the Doctrine and Covenants, the way the Lord introduces himself at the beginning of sections, he doesn't always, we saw that in section 37, just, hey, pause so you can move. But here, and, and many other places, often, in fact, there's a long introduction, and it will say such beautiful, it'll, the Lord will introduce himself in such a way that it puts in perspective what he's about to teach them or what he's about to ask them to do. Section 38 is actually one of my favorite examples of that early on. And the first six verses are all about this introduction. Verse 1, Thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. You see who's speaking to you in verse 1? This isn't Joseph Smith with some harebrained idea like, hey guys, I got a great idea. Let's move. No, this is coming from the Lord, your God. This is coming from Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the great I am. Now that, that title, I am that I am, is the God of the Exodus. Talk about picking up and moving. Talk about leaving one area to eventually come to a promised land. Talk about coming through the wilderness to receive the law and to be instructed on how to build a tabernacle so that God could be with them in their wilderness wanderings. Again, think of what lies ahead in this revelation, and the Lord is starting to hint at it already. I am that great I am. I'm Alpha and Omega, 
So that's the beginning and the end. The end of your time in New York and Pennsylvania. The beginning of your time in Ohio. The end of fear because of the beginning of preparation. The end of only having yourself to rely on. And the beginning of being endowed with power from on high. I am a God of change, of starts and stops, of beginnings and endings. And I love the way he ends it. I'm the one who looked upon the wide expanse of eternity. Before the world was even made, I get the big picture. I know this sounds like a daunting demand to pick up and move. But from my perspective, I mean, New York to Ohio, from up here, those don't look far apart at all. Believe me, if you can back up, give yourself some healthy distance from your challenges or your trials, you will see how small they actually are from the divine eternal perspective. In verse 2, I am the same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. Yes, I am aware that it's the dead of winter. I get that. Yes, I know what moving means in the 1830s. I get that it's difficult. But when I said back in section 37 that this was wisdom, I meant it. And I am the source of all wisdom. I know all things. All things are present before mine eyes including your worries and your concerns and your fears and your dangers that I'm trying to lead you away from. Trust me on this. Verse 3, I am the same which spake, and the world was made, and all things came by me. He will remind the saints of that reality elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants when he talks about the law of consecration. When people are worried, well, what do I stand to lose here? Will there be enough left over to be able for me to provide for my family? We're scared to death to consecrate because we think we're, we stand to lose. And yet, what is the Lord saying? I spoke and the world was made. You're worried about stuff? I make stuff. I create it. All things came by me. Believe me, I can provide for you. I provided the entire earth. So your measly 40 acres? Please. Trust that I will provide for you in all the things that you need. He puts that in perspective with verse 4. I am the same which have taken the Zion of Enoch into mine own bosom. So I've done this before. Believe me, you need a letter of recommendation? <laughs> Go ask Enoch. I pulled it off with them. I can pull it off with you. But it's going to require a gathering of consecrated saints People that are willing to become of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and not have any poor among them. That's God's definition of Zion from Moses chapter 7. And it's the city of Enoch, that Zion that was caught up to heaven. Well, now I'm trying to build it on earth. May the kingdom of God go forth right here on earth, build it, so that the kingdom of heaven may come. Zion below, meaning Zion above. But you've got to live the same kind of lifestyle that they do, which is a consecrated one. Verse 4, he'll continue putting this in perspective. Verily I say, even as many as have believed on my name, for I am Christ, and in mine own name, by the virtue of the blood which I have spilt, have I pleaded before the Father for them. It's almost like he's hinting there, are you really worried about what you stand to lose by following the Father's plan for you? Do you have any idea what I stood to lose 
in following God's plan for me, but it was worth it because of what I stood to gain, namely you and your salvation. I, by the virtue of the blood which I have spilt, it's what allows me to plead before the Father for your sake. I believed in the Father. I trusted his plan. If you will believe in my name, then you can trust in the, in the little mini plan that I'm giving you right now for your life. All it takes is for you to believe in my name and, and act in faith. Compared to verse 5, But behold, the residue of the wicked have I kept in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day, which shall come at the end of the earth. Again, great or dreadful, sheep or goats, wise or foolish virgins. Which group do you want to be a part of? The residue? I mean, that's such a kind of sticky word there, right? The, the leftovers. People who are left that don't believe in Christ's name and come unto him. The residue. Well, verse 6, Even so will I cause the wicked to be kept that will not hear my voice, but instead will harden their hearts. And woe, woe, woe is their doom. So here I am presenting you with both possibilities. I'm trying to make the choice as clear as I possibly can. Whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on my right hand or on my left? Those that hearken or those that harden their hearts? Choice is all ours. Now verse 7, But behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that mine eyes are upon you. I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me. So I am fully aware of your circumstance. Just because you can't see me doesn't mean that I can't see you. Trust that I know the situation that you're in. I'm not asking you to sacrifice out of my own ignorance. I, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were going through hard things already. It's because of what you're going through and because of what you'll yet face that I'm asking you to make these kinds of sacrifices now. They are what will prepare you. And if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. Then in verse 8, The day soon cometh that ye shall see me, and know that I am. For the veil of darkness shall soon be rent, and he that is not purified shall not abide the day. We've seen this before. Eventually, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And as Elder Maxwell has said, it, our kneeling then isn't going to mean a whole lot, since at that point we're no longer able to stand. It's choosing to kneel now. Choosing to hearken, choosing to, to, to see the Lord in our difficulties and in our blessings, even when it's not so obvious that he's here. Eventually it will be obvious. That veil of darkness will be rent and it will be crystal clear. But as, as Brigham Young would eventually say, can we learn to be righteous in the dark before that veil of darkness is rent? That's the real test of life. It's the test of faith. Now, verse 9, Wherefore, gird up your loins and be prepared. Behold, the kingdom is yours. The enemy shall not overcome. So this is hinting at what we're going to see later in the section as well. If you're prepared, you shall not fear. There are enemies that are after you, but they won't overcome. Verse 10, Verily I say unto you, Ye are clean, but not all. And there is none else with whom I am well pleased. Now that's an interesting statement. Not all clean. I wonder if all means completely or if all means collectively. In other words, well, you're not all clean. You individually are not completely clean. You have some things to work on, some things, some sins to repent of. And that's true for all of us. 
But I also wonder on the collective side, you are not, you are clean, but not all. That some of you are trying harder than others. Some are, have made more progress than others. But if it's one thing about the law of consecration and about Zion and the oneness that the Lord is asking of us, it's the fact that we're all in this together. It's not enough to be a Zion person by yourself off in some solitary monastery somewhere. It's becoming a Zion people. And if I'm clean, but there are those in my family or in my neighborhood or in my ward within my circle of influence that aren't clean yet, then we are clean, but not all. And as we'll see later in this exact section, if you're not one, you are not mine. He's trying to get us to move in that direction. In fact, keep this in mind in all that we're about to see. We, we, I tried to give you the end from the beginning already. I'm, this is all about law of consecration and the temple endowment. It's those two things that will prepare you against whatever, whatever the enemy might throw in your way. I'm trying to help you overcome the enemy. I'm trying to help you abide the day. I'm trying to help you learn to live righteously in the dark before the veil of darkness is rent. I'm trying to make you clean. And not just you individually, but you collectively. I need a Zion people. Another Zion of Enoch here upon the earth. That's the type of people with whom I am well pleased. Now in verse 11, he's going to talk more about that, that wickedness that we're up against. And this will begin hinting at those enemies in secret chambers that we saw later in the section. Verse 11, For all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of all the hosts of heaven. So it's not just me among you watching. All the hosts of heaven are, are watching with bated breath. How are things going on the earth? Remember, we're trying to turn hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. That, that we're trying to, to part the veil between this uh, side and the other. So, of course, the hosts of heaven are watching. But because the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth, verse 12, this causeth silence to reign, and all eternity is pained, and the angels are waiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned, and behold, the enemy is combined. Now do we see what we're up against? Silence reigns. Eternity is pained. You just picture all those hosts of heaven watching and seeing what's happening upon the earth and being devastated by it. This is the same kind of thing that we see in Moses chapter 7 where, where Enoch has these visions and sees the wickedness of all those upon the earth when he sees the earth itself groaning for the wickedness that is upon her face. To see heaven itself devastated by the hell we are making of life on earth when it doesn't have to be that way. When things could be better for all of us, cleaner and purer, kinder, more loving, more forgiving, more one. It doesn't have to be this way. Those angels, the destroying angels in this case, waiting the command, you just picture them chomping at the bit. Are we, are, is it time to go? It's like plagues of Egypt. We want to help free the, the slaves, get them to the promised land. Can we unleash this havoc upon a wicked Egyptian world or a wicked Babylon so that those in captivity can come back to Israel to build their temple. All of those Old Testament analogies fit so perfectly here. 
Now notice that detail also in verse 12. Those destroying angels, what are they asking for? This is all in context of the parable of the wheat and tares. Remember the field is white, all ready to harvest? Well, what we're growing is wheat here. But unfortunately, there are tares amidst the wheat. We'll see this taught more clearly in section 86 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is an amazing revelation in context of war, that's section 87, in context of the second coming, that's section 88. And so gathering out the righteous, there's wheat and tares all growing up together. An enemy hath done this. That's the language of that parable. But notice what is being gathered. You see, we always talk about the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil, right? That's such an emphasis from President Nelson. But here what's being gathered are the tares. But this is where section 86 really comes in handy. Because when we read the parable of the wheat and tares in the King James Version, it seems that the order is you've got this big field of wheat. Unfortunately, it's got some weeds growing in it, some tares. And so go and go, go weed the garden, basically. Okay, go pull out the tares so that you have wheat left over to harvest. What's interesting about the way Joseph corrects that in section 86, this is another blessing of the Joseph Smith translation, is it's the same concept, but the order is reversed. You actually gather out the wheat first so that all that's left in the field are the tares, which you then gather into bundles to be burned. You see, both the righteous and the wicked tend to stick together. Have you noticed that there seems to be a, a kind of common culture among the righteous and also a certain common culture among groups of the wicked? I mean, they zealously proclaim how different they are. But have you noticed they often end up being a whole lot like one another? That's the tares being bound in bundles. There is a gathering of the righteous, but also a gathering of the wicked. And the order is fascinating. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm looking out at my garden or my field, I, I want to kind of get a, a sense of what's in the majority and what's in the minority. If I've been doing pretty well with my gardening, and unfortunately, it just happens to be a few weeds out there. Well, then what am I going to pluck out? I'm going to gather out the wicked. If it's good for the most part, then it's easier just to get rid of those few things that shouldn't be there. And I pull out the tears. But if, on the other hand, my garden, my field has gone to pot and, and it's for the most part all overrun with weeds. Uh, that ended up being my lawn in Tennessee and my neighbors were always, I would just be out there trying to weed. And it's like the whole thing is weeds. It's kind of late to go picking out weeds. My neighbors would always laugh and go, eh. If it's green, it's green. It just, just mow it and it looks just like grass. It's totally fine. Okay, fine. I guess you have a point there. But as far as the Lord's concerned, it's not if it's green, it's green. It's if it's good, then it stays. But the idea is it's gotten so wicked overall that the simpler of the two is not to pull the weeds since they've overrun the field. It's to gather out the righteous one of a city and two of a family, and bring them to Zion, as Jeremiah said. The majority, unfortunately, has become wicked. It's actually easier to spot the isolated righteous souls. There are none that doeth good, save those who are prepared for the gospel, right? Gather them. Pull them out of their wicked surroundings and bring them to a place so that they know they're not alone in the universe. Gather the righteous, and then, verse 12, gather the tares that they may be burned. 
Like I said, we'll see this more in section 86. And we'll even talk more about these angels that are waiting the great command. Because Wilford Woodruff would teach this, and we'd see its fulfillment later in history, that God held back those destroying angels for a long time. But eventually the point came where he set them loose. We'll talk more about it when we get to that later parable. Now verse 13, Now I show unto you a mystery, a thing which is had in secret chambers. See, he's already pointing ahead to verse 28 that we've already seen. What's going on there? This mystery, this thing had in secret chambers, it's meant to bring to pass even your destruction in process of time. And ye knew it not. Now that process of time could be interpreted in two different ways. One could be, this is going to be a long process to get to a point where they can finally come and destroy us. They're going to be back in those secret chambers for a long time, hatching their plans. Okay, But in process of time, they're going to come roaring out and try to destroy us. That's one possibility. Another is the destruction that they are trying to plot is a slow death. It's not going to be so obvious. Like he said earlier, I'm in your midst. I see you. You don't see me. Well, I wonder, is there also a hint that there is wickedness in your midst as well? That's what he seemed to be getting at in verse 29. I mean, the obvious wars in far countries. Duh. You just read the newspaper and you see what's going on. But are you aware of the hearts of men all around you? In fact, are you aware of the heart that's within you? And its tendency to slowly turn away from righteousness towards wickedness. Will our own destruction occur slowly in process of time? And are there ways that the wicked world begins to just work its way in? That's the tares and the wheat, right? It's just a, a seed planted and the tear slowly grows up and almost matches and mirrors the wheat as they both grow up together. Are there things that the world, these mysteries plotted in secret chambers, planting seeds of destruction within each of us so that in process of time, we don't end up being what we intended to become? We're not the children of God that we, we said we would be when we won the war in heaven. Instead, the world has worked its way within us, and we don't even know. That's the kind of destruction I want God's help in, in steering me clear of. Those are the things, since I can't see them, that I want him to point them out to me. It's those things that the law of consecration and the temple endowment will help wean me off of, will help prepare me against. That's why you need to sacrifice and come to be able to live these covenants. Now, verse 14, Now I tell it unto you, and ye are blessed. Not because of your iniquity. So yeah, you're already working down that path. You've got some things to repent of. Neither your hearts of unbelief. And remember, it's the hardened heart that completely blocks the, the light of God. For verily some of you are guilty before me. Like I said, ye are clean, but not all. But, he ends verse 14, I will be merciful unto your weakness. And that verse puts it in perspective. When he says at the beginning that we're blessed, oh, well, I'm blessed. I must be doing really well. He pops that bubble pretty quick. Yes, you are blessed, but not because you deserve it. 
not because you're worthy of these blessings. In you, I see iniquity and I see unbelief and I see guilt, but I also see human frailty. I recognize your weakness. Remember Ether 12, 27? I give unto men weakness so that they can be humble. And if they'll humble themselves and come unto me, I'll, I'll make weak things become strong. My grace is sufficient for you. You've just got to recognize that weakness. I am merciful to it. I know what you're made of. I did condescend after all. But with that window of mercy, that umbrella of grace, verse 15, therefore be ye strong from henceforth. You've got to be better than you've been. Fear not. For the kingdom is yours. It's the Father's goodwill to give it to you. The kingdom is yours until I come. You've got to be able to live up to the kinds of blessings that I've given you. So then in verse 16, for your salvation, I give unto you a commandment. Every commandment is given for that purpose. For I have heard your prayers. I see that again. You've been praying for things. I will always respond. But then this, and the poor have complained before me. And the rich have I made, and all flesh is mine, and I am no respecter of persons. Ah, now we're starting to get to the subject on the Lord's mind. You understand why he's going to start thinking about law of consecration? Verse 16, it starts to become much more clear that there's an economic side of what is taking place here. I've often heard it said that the, the most sensitive body part of a human being is their wallet. It's, I mean, you want to see what a person's made of. Talk about their, their finances. See where they spend their money and, and what they spend it on and, and, and how much they think they need and, and who they think it's for. Ask the rich young ruler what money can do. Ask Jesus about the coin with Caesar's inscription and see how much he cares about worldly wealth. Who he's concerned about, verse 16, was two groups. I'm concerned about the poor. They've been complaining before me. I'm concerned about the rich. I made them. Remember what we saw earlier on in this revelation? I spake and the world was made. Everything came by me. I made the earth. Like I said, he'll say that again in context of consecration later on. But here in verse 16, where it's, our eyes are starting to open. Ah, this is what you're getting at. I would even suggest that this is starting to make sense of these enemies in secret chambers seeking our, our lives. These enemies and their mysteries that are trying to bring to pass our destruction in process of time. Think of that phrase and ponder materialism and worldliness, avarice and greed. And it is, it's scary to see how, that, how much that can slowly work into us and, and before long, we don't even know who we were. We care so much about the things of the world instead of the things of God. We saw that last week. Your mind has been on the things of this world rather than the things of your maker. In fact, let, let's try to be clear. When we talk about these, these enemies in secret chambers, think of the word of wisdom, for example. In section 89, the Lord warns the saints that in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. Sound like enemies in secret chambers? Conspiring men that have evils and designs that they're working on to try to, to get us to do what they would have us do, to become addicted to certain things. 
where now we're trapped, we've given up our agency, which was Satan's plan from the very beginning. He hasn't changed much. Well, imagine the challenges, if, if that's the challenges of word of wisdom kinds of issues, imagine the challenges of addictions of a materialistic kind. Think about commercialism and consumerism, about greed and selfishness, about preying upon other people's weaknesses so I can make a quick buck. Remember a few weeks ago when I talked about that, that football analogy and that the entire strategy of playing the game will change if you just redefine victory? And if we went from faith and family to defining victory with things like prosperity and pride and power, then everyone's going to start playing the game differently. And they are. Talk about destruction in process of time. It's scary to think about what, oh, what advertising does to try to work within us. This is something you want, that you need, that you have to have. The idea of what they call the creeping average, that what used to be fine, well, now it no longer is, and I need something bigger and better and bigger and better. Uh, Elder Joe J. Christensen of the 70 years ago gave an amazing talk on this, and he used this little phrase, there, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. And that, that is scary but true. That is destruction in process of time. That what I own starts to own me, and I just want more. That other people are drains of what I could be spending or saving or amassing for myself. How is the Lord going to wean us off of those cares of the world? Would consecration help? Would a temple endowment and all the sacrifice that's required even to build the building to begin with, are those ways that the Lord will help us become one, to become one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and not have any poor among us? Is this how we're going to become Zion? When my kids were little, we didn't really have TV. And it's interesting that when there's no TV, there's no commercials. It's actually interesting now with internet streaming services that there's really not that many commercials now either. But what it's really interesting to have raised children without exposure to many commercials. Because when Christmas would come around, they didn't know what they were supposed to want. It's like, what do you guys want for Christmas? I don't know. What is there? And I remember there'd be times where you'd get like the mailer with kind of the toy section of, of the local uh, department store or whatever. And there'd be, I mean, wide-eyed little kids like, what? This stuff has existed all these, this time? Mom and Dad, you didn't tell us about it. Well, yeah, for, for, for good reason trying to save you and us. But this, I mean, to be exposed to the world telling you this is what's cool. This is what is normal. This is what's expected of you. This is what you should be spending your money on. In fact, this is who you should be spending your money on. It's all about you, you, you. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Lord already said in this revelation. Now go back to this idea in verse 16. The poor have been complaining before me and the rich I made them. Now, we're going to start seeing a really interesting tension develop here because the Lord admitted it. I made the rich. I mean, I made the earth and, and I made some people rich. Well, if you're so big on oneness, then why didn't you make all of us equal? Oh, good question. That's my goal. 
That's what he said at the end of verse 16. All flesh is mine. I am no respecter of persons. In fact, verse 17, I have made the earth rich. Behold, it is my footstool. Wherefore, again, I will stand upon it. That kind of puts it in proper perspective, too. We saw that back at the beginning of the Revelation, right? Me and all the seraphic hosts of heaven. I mean, that's just a puny little earth. It's my footstool. But it's a heck of a footstool. I mean, I, I spent some serious time. I mean, six days after all. Uh, and, and it's a masterpiece. I've made the earth rich. We'll see later in the Doctrine and Covenants. He made it with enough and to spare. There's plenty for all of my children to become wealthy in the ways that matter most. Something's going wrong, though. If verse 17, I made the earth rich, and 16, I'm no respecter of persons, then why are some people rich by God's making? And why are some people poor and complaining to God about it? If you're after oneness, which is what the, the Zion of Enoch was all about, its defining characteristic, then why did you set things up in the wrong way, for lack of a better description. We're never going to get there. Verse 18, I hold forth and deign to give unto you greater riches, even a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, upon which there shall be no curse when the Lord cometh. That's what, that's what I'm after. You think you're rich now. That's nothing compared to what I'm trying to give you. Greater riches. I am the great I am. Believe me, I know what it's like to bring a people out of bondage through a wilderness to a land that flows with milk and honey. I've done that before. I'm trying to do it again. In some ways, I'm trying to reverse the fall. I mean, that's what the atonement was after, right? By virtue of the blood which I have spilt, I can plead to the Father. I can approach your weakness in mercy. I want to get to a point where there's no curse when the Lord cometh. No more will sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He'll come and make the blessings flow, far as the curse was found. The Lord is reversing all of that. That's what millennial rain will do. When the earth is purified and receives its paradisical glory. Verse 19, I will give it unto you for the land of your inheritance, if, and this is the big if, if you seek it with all your hearts. You see, that's the problem. You're, yeah, you kind of want it, but so much of your heart is going to lesser things. All I want is wheat to grow within you. Why are you allowing the enemy to plant their tares? Why do you allow your heart to be pulled in so many different directions when you could simply fix it upon me and come unto me with all your heart, might, mind, and strength? So trust me, you can have this for your inheritance if you want it. You just have to want it more than any other thing. And for the most part, I'm still seeing that you are clean, but not all. That there are those and parts of you that your heart is still pulled in, in more materialistic directions. Verse 20, this shall be my covenant with you. So in context of consecration and temple endowment, here is my covenant. You shall have it for the land of your inheritance and for the inheritance of your children forever, while the earth shall stand and ye shall possess it again in eternity, no more to pass away. 
So there again is the, the earth shall be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. We're not trying to leave the earth to go off to some uh, our, our mansions above. We're trying to renew the earth so that it becomes the celestial kingdom, an inheritance for us and for our children forever, throughout eternity. Verse 21, but verily I say unto you, that in time you shall have no king nor ruler, for I will be your king and watch over you. Now, this is an odd thing to say to a bunch of Americans. This is 1830. The United States is still relatively young. You still have a bunch of European uh, travelers coming to the United States in the 1830s. To, I mean, that's when de Tocqueville came. It's when Trollope came. Uh, so many of these visitors to check out what they called the American experiment. How's this whole democracy thing working out for you guys? You got any buyer's remorse yet? You ready to come back to the, to the empire and, and God save the king? Well, Americans, that word king is one that they're going to chafe at. Like, are you kidding me? We don't do kings here. Well, I beg to differ. You're no longer beholden to the king of England. But have you crowned King Cash? Is that what you care most about? Does money and materialism rule and reign over your life? Where everything you're thinking about and everything you're doing has to be, I mean, the money, the almighty dollar is wielding the scepter. Or will we allow God to be our king? Will we allow Christ to watch over us? Now, please don't think this is just me making this up to try to make it all fit according to the law of consecration. Like I said, all these European travelers were coming to scope out the United States and see what American life was like. Tocqueville, who was probably the most famous of all of those visitors, said this after he toured the United States in 1835. So same time period. He said, I am not even aware of a country where the love of money has a larger place in men's hearts or where they express a deeper scorn for the theory of a permanent equality of possessions. Man, it's almost as if de Tocqueville heard what the Lord had up his sleeve with the law of consecration. De Tocqueville's like, what, are you not uh, in America? Are you kidding me? There's not a place on the planet where people are more opposed to that kind of equality. Because we finally have political equality, which gives me a chance to go get ahead of all of my neighbors. That upward mobility that freedom and democracy brought to the United States, again, was a beautiful political blessing. But in some ways, it led to an economic curse. Prior to democracy, the, the downfall of it was that there was no freedom. But the benefit of it was there was incredible order. And for the most part, people just assumed, well, I'm in a position that God intended for me. He made the king. He made the aristocracy. He made the, the, the working class. And he made the poor. If I'm a peasant, it's because that's what God wanted. You kind of get that hint back in verse 18, the rich have I made. So, so among the, the, the common people, there was this sense of, well, that there's no good, there's no changing anyway. I can't change my position in, in the ladder of life. And so I might as well just get used to the rung that I'm on. Now, I'm not saying that that's all a good thing. I, I don't want to go back to medieval feudalism, believe me. But with the blessing of political freedom, the challenge then became, well, I, if there's no pecking order, there still is a, a, a social ladder to climb, and now I can actually climb it. And so if I kind of get rich quick and, and get ahead of my neighbors, I can look down on someone else. That was a huge part of, of that time period. 
You get quack doctors and snake oil salesmen and, and land speculators and everyone trying to make a quick buck. Like de Tocqueville said, nowhere on earth have I seen such a love of money. And what did the Lord say about that? That it's the root of all evil. Another traveler, Francis Trollope, said this in her 1832 book about the manners of Americans. Every bee in the hive is actively employed in search of that honey of Hybla vulgarly called money. Neither art, science, learning, nor pleasure can seduce them from its pursuit. Later she said, I heard an Englishman who had been long resident in America declare that in following, in meeting, in overtaking, in the street, on the road, in the field, at the, at the theater, the coffee house, or at home, he had never overheard Americans conversing without the word dollar being pronounced between them. Such unity of purpose, such sympathy of feeling can, I believe, be found nowhere else except, perhaps, in an ant's nest. Wow, she was. Mrs. Trillope was not very impressed with this, okay? As she is focused, sees, sees Americans, either are they bee, bees in the hive or ants in the ant colony? Because all they're busy, busy, busy trying to amass money. That's the nectar they're after. Now, it wasn't just an American thing, because even if de Tocqueville and Trillope went back home to England, what would they find there? This is a man named John Sterling, who's writing about Great Britain in 1828. So this first generation of British converts that eventually is going to come and move to Kirtland as well, well, this is the life that they are leaving behind. Sterling put it this way, Wealth, 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 praise be to the god of the 19th century, the golden idol, the mighty mammon. Such are the accents of the time, such the cry of the nation. There may be here and there an individual who does not spend his heart in laboring for riches, but there is nothing approaching to a class of persons actuated by any other desire. Did you catch that? You might meet someone here and there that isn't consumed by consumption, but to find a, a, a collective group of people willing to live in an altruistic, a selfless, a consecrated kind of way, good luck finding anything like that. You see what the Lord is trying to accomplish among the saints and the kind of culture that the saints are going to have to overcome, the kind of personal weaknesses that they're going to have to do away with, the weakness that the Lord is merciful to, but the commandment that he's giving to help us overcome that weakness. Oh yes, I need to be endowed with power from on high. I won't have the power to do it myself. Fast forward the clock just a little. And in 1850, Henry Ward Beecher, who was a very famous American preacher, said this, We that consume, so here's consumerism again, are daily in the consumption of lies. We drink lying coffee. We eat lying food. We patch lying clothes with cheating thread. We perfume ourselves with lying essence. We wet our feet in lying boots. Catch cold, however, truly enough, and are tormented with adulterated drugs. It's like everything we buy is lying to us. It's promising us uh, wealth or health or success or happiness. And that's not where it comes from. Pay attention the next time we watch commercials and see if they're being honest in their advertising. What are they promising us? I actually read a book 
Because I study anti-religious rhetoric, I'm always trying to make sense of what's the rhetorical approach people are taking to try to convince us that we're wrong in, in living a life of faith. And so uh, I, I read weird things, uh, a lot of psychology and sociology and philosophy, just trying to make sense of how does that work? The way, they can't prove that religion is false. So what are they trying to make me think or feel or fear by the rhetorical approach that they're taking? And so one strange book that I read was on the history of American advertising, because that's rhetoric also. That's, I'm trying to plant things in your head that will then affect your behavior. And it was so interesting to read this history and realize what advertising has been after throughout American history is planting desire in us. Not even just a desire for a specific object, but just desire and let the desire keep working and working because then you'll gobble up that object, but you won't be satisfied because you still have desire. And so you'll gobble up that and then want this and then take that and then covet this. And it's, I just, there's the planned obsolescence. Well, that was yesterday's model. I need something new. And again, there, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. Oh, I'll, I'll want that. That, that to me is, is what's scary about designing men and enemies in secret chambers, plotting a slow destruction if they can plant within us a desire for more stuff that is never fully satisfied because even once we get it, then we're on to the next desire. What am I supposed to want and pursue next? All of those things that are getting in the way of our connection with God and with one another. They have redefined victory and we're starting to play their game. It was one thing for the United States or the colonists at the time to declare their independence from the King of Britain. But back to verse 21, oh, when will you declare your independence from King Cash, from King Capital, from King Consumerism? from king consumption. Which ruler will you give your allegiance to? Verse 22, wherefore hear my voice, follow me. You shall be a free people. You shall have no laws, but my laws when I come, for I am your lawgiver. And what can stay my hand? Can you imagine living free of greed? Free of selfishness? Free to, to give? Free to offer others things that they can't receive on their own. Free from an insatiable hunger that never ends up getting satisfied. Now, it's going to take some effort to get there, obviously. Verse 23, Verily I say unto you, Teach one another according to the office wherewith I have appointed you. You cannot do this by yourself. For consecration to work, it, it, it's not an individual thing. This goes back to Sterling's concern about England. Maybe one, maybe a person here and a person there would be willing to live that kind of selfless life, but to get a group together to do it, and yet that's what's going to be expected. So go teach one another according to this office. Then 24 and 25, he says it twice. So repetition to rivet our attention. Let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. And in case you missed it the first time, again I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. You see, when, by the time we get to section 42, which is known as the law, we'll see more clearly what the law of consecration will entail. 
And so much of section 38 is meant to prepare them to be able to receive that law in the proper spirit. We'll see it in section 42, where the Lord drops hints and gives command and counsel that will help them ultimately live the law of consecration. But we're already seeing him drop those kinds of hints here in section 38. Imagine how much easier it would be to be generous with one another if we esteemed our brothers as ourselves. If we didn't think, well, they they deserve to be where they are, and I deserve to be where I am. No, if I esteemed everyone as myself, if I fully embraced the golden rule, if I practiced virtue and holiness before God, to the point that I realized that all these things are actually His, and this is a matter of stewardship rather than ownership, that if I'm rich, oh, it's only because God made me that way. And must have made me that way for a purpose, since, after all, he is no respecter of persons. All flesh is his. Now, with that in mind, go to verse 26, which to me is one of the most amazing verses in this whole revelation. I love section 38, verse 26. He tells them a little story. Again, all of this is meant to prepare them for the law of consecration, including this little story. Verse 26, for what man among you, having 12 sons... Now, we should automatically think, oh, 12 sons of 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, this is God. This is his chosen people. He has 12 sons, and he is no respecter of them. We already saw that clearly in verse 16. I'm no respecter of persons. So we already should know who the father is in this little parable. So now that we have our, our, our roles clarified, our cast of characters, let's start the story over again. What man among you, having 12 sons and is no respecter of persons... And they serve him obediently. And he saith unto the one, Be thou clothed in robes, and sit thou here. And to the other, Be thou clothed in rags, and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons, and saith, I am just. Now, that's an odd parable. Just one verse story, painting the picture of a man with twelve sons, all of whom he loves equally. But he doesn't treat them equally. To one, he says, why don't you go sit there on the throne, so to speak, and, and, and the robes and the ring and the fatted calf, it's all yours. You, on the other hand, oh, you go sit in the corner and think about what you did. Okay? You get the rags over there. And what the Lord is saying in verse 26 is, what kind of a lousy father is that? What kind of a dad who claims to be fair to all of his children would treat his own family in such unfairness and then look around at his boys and say, I'm just, aren't I? Now, the one sitting in the, in, the ro- in the robes is probably like, yeah, dad, you're awesome. The one with the rags, you think he might complain to his father? Why are you treating me this way? Why did you treat him differently if you say you love us all the same? Now, what, makes, what strikes me as odd with verse 26 is it really does seem like the Lord is painting himself into a corner. Because if, you, if you're listening to this and he's saying, yeah, what kind of a lousy, unjust father would treat his children so differently that rags and riches is all just, I don't know, the way he, he distributes his own wealth. What kind of a just father is that? Now, if you have the guts or you're, I don't know, lightning proof, maybe you'll raise your hand and go, um, with all due respect, uh, what kind of a father would do that? Um, you did. Sorry, but, but that, that's exactly what you did. 
you did make some people rich and leave some people poor. You did give rags and riches and, and it isn't fair. So all your claims to be no respecter of persons? Well, all evidence to the contrary. Now, please forgive me for speaking out of line, but the unjust father you just described is exactly our father in heaven. What's wrong with this picture? Now, lest we think that we're out of place for saying that, verse 27, he admits it. Behold, this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. Wait, what? So you admit it? That that's the kind of father you are? The kind that gave robes to one and rags to another? How dare you then claim to be no respecter of persons? And I think right there the Lord would say, no, now stop. Because I am no respecter of persons. I don't, I don't need to just sneak that into a story. I said it clearly back in verse 16. All flesh is mine. I am no respecter of persons. And I made the earth rich. So guess where the problem lies? Not with me, but with you. Now, again, we might push back a little and say, but no, but you even said that you made the rich. If you really are no respecter of persons, if you love all of your children equally, then you could have made us all equal from the very beginning. And that's when the Lord would say, oh, yes. And that would have been so easy for me. I would have proven the kind of God I am. But you would not have had a chance to prove the kind of person that you are. You see, here's how it's going to work, kids. All 12 of you children are brothers and sisters of one another. And you have a father who loves you all equally, who is no respecter of persons. I'm going to set things up unfairly and then watch what you do with what I've given you. Please know that I am a loving and a just father. Make me that. Treat one another, treat your siblings in such a way that you will right what looked like wrongs that I set up. You see, this is what I call inequality in pursuit of equality. That God sets it up in an unequal, unfair way. But by his very nature as a just and perfectly equitable father, he wants us to get to the point where we can be one. That's how he ends verse 27. I say unto you, be one. And if ye are not one, ye are not mine. You're no children of me. If I'm the just father and no respecter of persons, then it has to be like father, like son. You have to learn to be equal. And so I will set it up in such a way that you have a chance to prove yourself, to learn equality. And along the way, believe me, the rich will learn lessons. The poor will learn lessons. They will learn lessons as they become one with another. And in the process of becoming one, they'll become mine. They'll become like me. I've sometimes used wind as an analogy for this. Because wind is a great example of inequality seeking equality. All wind is, I mean, nature abhors a vacuum, and nature always seeks an equilibrium. Nature is like the God of nature, who is 
just and has no re is no respecter of persons. Uh, total equality is what nature is, is after. And so if there's an area of high pressure and an area of low pressure, then that's what causes the wind. It will seek its own equilibrium. Look, think about water flowing. If there's water at a higher place that has more potential energy, water, all it ever does is seek the easiest way to get downhill. And what's that doing? It's trying to seek equilibrium. Water is always on the level or in pursuit of it. Well, then why not have all barometric pressure equal around the clock and around the world? Or why not just keep water always at the level? If nature wants that equilibrium, let it have it. Well, again, that's the power of setting it up with inequality, knowing that nature will inexorably seek equilibrium. Because guess what? Wind and water flow can do a lot of good. There is power that comes through that flow. With no wind, there's no wind turbines. There's no energy. There's no power being produced. Think about water, you know, mills and water wheels and all the power that comes when that potential energy is given off in other dimensions. And I hope, you under, I hope I'm making sense here. I mean, even in, within the human body, since the body is always seeking equilibrium, I've seen in different uh, medical procedures where they will send a certain, you know, whether it's iodine or some kind of an isotope for medication, if we can high concentrate in this part of the body, the body will naturally circulate it through so that it gets to areas of low concentration. So once again, there is power that comes through the flow. It's, God can actually get more mileage out of his equality if he doesn't start us there. If he tells us, this is my intended destination, but this is where you're going to start. Now find each other. Allow the wind to blow and the water to flow. Those who have, give to those who have not, and you will learn. Those who have not, yet don't just complain to me. Seek an understanding and, and have the humility to ask for assistance. And we'll see more of this in section 42 about the highs and the lows and the haves and the have-nots and what each party has to contribute and what each party needs to overcome. There's strengths and weaknesses on both sides of the equation. But again, that's part of the power of the flow of what God is trying to do. I love verse 26 and 27. As the Lord, like I said, paints himself into a corner and then says to his children, you guys make me just. You prove that I am a fair father. If you are not one, then you're not mine. Because that's not really who I am. You see how all of this is leading to the law of consecration? why we have to come to the Ohio. Now does it make sense why, why we started in verse 28 and 29 and 30 and 31 and 32? That's what we're up against with these secret, these enemies in secret chambers seeking our lives. We have to overcome the commercialism and the consumerism and the individualism, the, the hedonism that, that's all about me, me, me. We've got to overcome that. That's what's going on in the hearts of men in your very own land. That's why you've got to be gathered. You've got to become a righteous people. You need to be without spot and blameless. You've got to come to the Ohio because there I'm going to give you my commandments. 
my law of consecration. There you'll be endowed with power from on high, from a building that will require the ultimate sacrifices from all of you. The Zion of Enoch? Well, we're about to make a Zion of Joseph, and it'll need all hands on deck. Verse 33 then, now that we know that consecrated saints and endowed servants are what the Ohio experience will begin to produce, Verse 33, from thence, whosoever I will shall go forth among all nations, and it shall be told them what they shall do. For I have a great work laid up in store, for Israel shall be saved. All 12 of those sons from our little parable. And I will lead them whithersoever I will, and no power shall stay my hand. No power can. My saints will finally be endowed with my power. Isn't that what missionaries go through before they head out? Before they go forth among all nations, they go to the temple where they are endowed with power, where they promise to consecrate all that they have and all that they are to build God's kingdom. They are prepared for this. Verse 34 then, Now I give unto the church in these parts a commandment, that certain men among them shall be appointed, and they shall be appointed by the voice of the church. Now what we're getting at here is bishops which are in charge of temporal affairs and other things. In section 41, which is next week, and we're only a couple of sections away, Edward Partridge, who we met last week, will be called as the first bishop. In the midst of this, con this conversation about consecration, we're going to need people who can receive and can give, who can organize and distribute, who can help make sure that the riches and the robes get to all 12 children in the house. They'll be appointed by the voice of the church, so common consent is still a, a part of all of this. 35, they shall look to the poor and the needy and administer to their relief that they shall not suffer and send them forth to the place which I have commanded them. You see, this is coming in response to those, those prayers of the poor who are complaining to the Lord. A bishop will be called to help relieve you, to help save you from your suffering. He will look to the poor and the needy I mentioned already that we're seeing perfect the saints and proclaim the gospel. Redeem the dead is still a long ways away. But care for the poor and the needy, the fourth of the four missions of the church, that's coming out loud and clear right here. Now verse 36, this shall be their work, the work of a bishop, to govern the affairs of the property of this church. It's one of the reasons that they're the head of the Aaronic priesthood, since Aaronic is in charge of temporal things. And Melchizedek is more in charge of the spiritual things. Remember, it's all spiritual to God, section 29. That's why Aaronic is very spiritual as well. But the temporal side of things, that's Aaronic work. The presiding bishop of the church, that's the head of the Aaronic priesthood. Just like the prophet is the head of the Melchizedek priesthood in the church. Verse 37. Now this is an interesting one. And they that have farms that cannot be sold, eh, let them be left or rented as seemeth them good. Now, you want to talk about putting in perspective how God feels about our stuff? Remember, from his perspective, your 40 acres doesn't look like much. Uh, yeah, I mean, all, you're, you're picking up and you're moving. That's going to require you to, to sell your property. Now, you want to talk about a buyer's market when practically everyone in this area is, they're all moving, and, and you know that they're being called of God to do so? Oh, well, I'll just wait till you lower the price, since now I know you have to sell. And there's all kinds of uh, possibilities here in the market. Well, if I don't buy yours, I can, borrow, I can buy somebody else's. 
It's amazing how many farms just went up for sale. This, this is going to be a rough situation for the saints as they're leaving. And so what's your option if you can't sell it? Well, the Lord says, well, you could rent it. And they're like, oh, that's true. I could, that's still money making. I, 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 that'll cover my, my expenses and so on. Uh, what if that doesn't work? Well, you could always just leave it. And you picture these, these poor saints that have poured their life into clearing land and building their, their homes. Leave it? Just walk away? Is, is that even an option? Well, sure. It's, it's actually the easiest one. You, you don't even have to hire a realtor. You just go. I, I mean, I don't know how many people took him up on that one. I, I'm sure that it went in that, that order. I'm going to try to sell first and rent second and leave third. Oh, boy, can I even do that? But it does put in perspective how God feels about our stuff. Just let it go. If it is keeping you from coming unto Christ, then just leave it. That rich young ruler, sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. <laughs> I guess he could have just even rented it and given the poor the proceeds or just walk away. Now, I, I'll confess, I don't know if this was a complete abandonment of, of prior possessions. Because in verse 38, when he says, See that all things are preserved. And when men are endowed with power from on high and sent forth, all these things shall be gathered unto the bosom of the church. I don't know if, that was, if that's more spiritual or temporal in verse 38. If it's temporal, then it could be, well, even if you have to walk away, you do still own the property. Uh, you might not get any money from it. But if you still have the deed, so to speak then the day may come when those old possessions can be gathered into the bosom of the church because you still possess it. So it may be a matter of, can you sell it now? Can you rent it? Well, it's still worth something, even if you can't sell it or rent it right now in this, like I said, this buyer's market with all kinds of farms available. But just hold on to it. Preserve it. Someday, men will be endowed with power from on high. They'll be sent forth, and all these blessings can come back into the bosom of the church. Verse 39 continues then on this economic vein. If ye seek the riches, which it is the will of the Father to give you, ye shall be the richest of all people, for ye shall have the riches of eternity. And it must needs be that the riches of the earth are mine to give. So he keeps kind of bouncing back and forth. Like, are you talking about spiritual blessings or temporal blessings? And he's just kind of nodding his head like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's all the same to me. Remember, everything's spiritual. He talked about the earth being rich back in verse 17. He hints at that again in 39. The riches of the earth are mine to give. But even more than that, the riches of eternity. Whoa. That, that, that makes the earth look like the footstool that it is. Come, come off the footstool. Come up to the throne. And you'll have a different perspective on what riches really look like. And at the end of it all, at the end of verse 39, but beware of pride, lest you become as the Nephites of old. I mean, you want to talk about exhibit A, then reread your Book of Mormon. And you'll see the, the pride cycle where, where righteousness leads to blessedness, which is pros includes prosperity, which almost inexorably leads to pride. That's the downfall of the Nephite civilization. Jaredites too. So, I mean, take your pick, okay? But either way, do not join them. We've seen two strikes in the Book of Mormon. Please do not make a, a modern Israel third strike and you're out. It is my desire to bless you. 
But every time I do, every time the riches start flowing your way, I hold my breath and worry, knowing what the next step on the pride cycle is. The John Wesley, the wonderful founder of Methodism, incredible man. Remember, Joseph was leaning Methodist before the first vision. Uh, what Wesley was after was a revival of religion. He knew the pride cycle. He saw it off in, in destruction and apathy, and he wanted to move it in the direction of righteousness. And he did. Methodism was incredibly successful at, at reviving Anglicanism. But when it got there, Wesley himself said, there's no such thing as a permanent revival of religion. Because what happens as soon as we, we come back to God, he blesses us. And that's happening. And unfortunately, what's the next step? We get prideful and forgetful and turn away from him. That's the, it was the pride cycle that was the natural death knell of the, of the revival of religion. What the Lord is asking for the saints is prove Wesley wrong. Prove the Book of Mormon wrong as far as the, the nature of the pride cycle looking unavoidable. Prove me as a just father. Prove that I, that I can afford to be unequal on the front end because I can trust you to make things equal on the back end. Beware of pride. Then in verse 40, Again I say unto you, I give unto you a commandment that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and member, go to with his might, with the labor of his hands, to prepare and accomplish the things which I have commanded. Which means sell the house or get it ready for rental or walk away, load the wagon, get, gather your stuff, bring a coat. It is January now, okay? Uh, but move. As inconvenient as I'm making this, the commandment is for all of you to labor with your might and accomplish what I've asked. By the way, it's important that you get used to that kind of labor because the law of consecration will bank on you all laboring. It'll be more a matter of what can you give than what can I receive. This is work. This is not the dole, okay? Then 41 and 42, he ends this revelation. Let your preaching be the warning voice, every man to his neighbor, in mildness, in meekness. Don't get overwrought about mysteries and, and evil men and secret chambers and, and destruction and process of time and everything else. But be mild, be meek, but warn them. Warn them that God is asking us to gather out of Babylon, to come to Zion, to build a temple, to live the law of consecration. All of that is going to begin once we get to Ohio. Verse 42, go you out from among the wicked. Save yourselves. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Even so, amen. All that talk is leaving Babylon also or coming out of Egypt. Either way. You're trying to get to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And even that phrase, bearing the vessels of the Lord, the vessels he was speaking of, that whole verse is referring to the return to Israel from the Babylonian captivity. They were going to come back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild its walls, that's Ezra and Nehemiah, and most importantly, rebuild its temple, that's the book of Haggai. And what do you need to be able to perform the ordinances of the temple in the Old Testament? The vessels of the Lord. And so those Levites, those Aaronic priesthood holders, are supposed to bring the vessels of the Lord back as they are leaving Babylon and coming back to Zion. But to bear those vessels, 
You've got to be clean. Amazing temple context that he's ending this revelation with. Now, when I end verse section 38, I'm just itching to jump forward to section 42. Because with 42, I just, okay, well, now's the law. Here we are in Ohio, and we're ready to rock. But there are three revelations that we, ha- we need to get through. And we get to. They're awesome revelations. Don't get me wrong. I'm just itching for 42 because that fulfills what 39 or 38 was, was preparing us for. Now, back up one from 42, and you got 41, and there's Edward Partridge called to be bishop. You, got, you need somebody in place before we do all this stuff. Otherwise, well, who am I going to consecrate it? Who am I going to give it to? Okay? So 41 is a necessary preliminary preparation for what 42 will ask of them. And 39 and 40, in some ways, are are out of place as far as that story is concerned, but beautifully in place. There's great relevance in 39 and 40 in terms of what, oh, what the law of consecration is going to be asking of the saints, because it's, it's one thing to commit to it. It's another thing to actually live it, to raise our hand to the square and say, yeah, I'll support Bishop Partridge and, and I mean, common consent, right? Voice of the people. And I will, I will follow through with the promise, the covenant that I'm making to become one with all other 11 siblings in this family of a fair father. But when push comes to shove, and I, I'm actually one of those that had a, a, a robe and got the riches and sat over there, I, I like my seat better than the one over there. And I, that's going to be hard for me to give it up. So will I be able to follow through with the covenant that I've made? Well, that's where we see section 39 and section 40. Because independent of the law of consecration and the real story going on here, you get to meet one man, James Covell. And James Covell is going to be, it's always been pronounced Coville in the past, so I'm, I'm ho- I hope I'm saying it Covell right. Now, I'll tell you that's, uh, the reason for that in just a moment. But his is a story about making promises and not following through. Of, of making a covenant to do something, and then not having the character to follow through with your covenant. And, and I think the lesson that we learn from his example, his poor example, because in 39 he makes the promise, and by 40 it's the next day, and he's already broken it. That didn't last long. And, and hopefully this is a cautionary tale to the rest of the saints, saying, well, before you judge James Covell poorly, judge yourself. And will you follow through with what you are promising to do? Because consecration is hard. It'll require all that, that you're made of. It, because it's trying to make you into something better. Okay? But James Covell, like I said, in, in older editions of the scriptures, his name is, is pronounced, or looks at least, like James Coville. And according to the chapter heading, James Coville had been a Baptist minister for nearly 40 years. He meets Joseph Smith. He's amazed by the restored gospel. And he says, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. In fact, anything God asks me to do through the prophet Joseph, sign me up for. I'll do it. That's section 39. Well, the original manuscripts didn't, just simply called him James C., and so it was up to historians to figure out, well, who's this James guy that basically stuck around for a day? That makes it hard to follow. Well, and they found some information about a James Coville that had been a Baptist minister, thinking, oh, that must be him. Well, later historians, doing a good job of checking their predecessor's work, realized, wait a minute, James Coville, he lived way far away from where Joseph and, and Sidney are living at the time. And that, that would have been a tall order for, really? I mean, I guess the missionaries go, 
I don't know. And according to the records that we have, it seems like they were talking to a Methodist, not a Baptist. And so that doesn't really fit. Let's go, ah, let's go back to the drawing board and search the records and see if we can find this James C. Well, they found another James C., a James Covell, who also had been a minister for near 40 years. He had been a Methodist. That's a point in his favor. Oh, and he only lived 15 or 20 miles away. That's much more likely than this other James Coville that lives 150 miles from here. So if you look at scriptures pre-2013, it's James Coville, a Baptist. Scriptures post-2013, it's James Coville, a Methodist. I kind of chuckle that I'm like, you know, I'm used to uh, Baptists for the Dead changing people's religion after the fact to LDS. But this is the first time I've ever seen somebody's religion changed from Baptist to Methodist after they were dead. Well, no, it's not exactly what happened. Two different people, okay? So we're replacing James Coville with James Cobble. But regardless of his specific identity, the, the metaphor that he becomes, the embodiment of broken covenants, of big words followed by small deeds, that, that, that's him. And like I said, what a perfect cautionary tale for all these saints that are moving to Ohio in the dead of winter and promising to do hard things. Will they follow through with them? Now, this revelation begins with an introduction full of foreshadowing as well. Based on what I've already told you about what James is going to promise and what he's not going to do, listen to these words. 39.1, hearken and listen to the voice of him who is from all eternity to all eternity. The great I am, even Jesus Christ. The light and the life of the world, a light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The same which came in the meridian of time unto mine own, and mine own received me not. I really wonder if this is starting to hint, if the Lord sees the end from the beginning and is saying, James, I'm used to rejection. I shine and darkness doesn't get me. I come to my own and my own don't receive me. You've been a minister of mine for the last four decades. Will you receive me as I come to you in my fullness? Or in darkness will you refuse to comprehend? The choice is yours, but in verse 4, To as many as received me gave I power to become my sons. And even so will I give unto as many as will receive me power to become my sons. So I did it in mortality. It's how I'm still doing it now. Will you choose to become my son, James? Verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth my gospel receiveth me, and he that receiveth not my gospel receiveth not me. And this is the choice that James is making right then. Verse 6, This is my gospel, repentance and baptism by water, which you need to follow through with. You need to be baptized, James. And then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which showeth all things and teacheth the peaceable things of the kingdom. Here's the fourth article of faith again. James, you have faith in Christ. That's why you've spent your life preaching of me. But will you follow the rest of these preliminary principles and ordinances of the gospel? Now, verse 7, we're getting much more personal. Seems like verse 7 is where he begins to address James Cobble, but he's actually been hinting at him all along. Now behold, I say unto you, my servant James, I have looked upon thy works, and I know thee. 
This reminds me of what the Lord had said to Sidney Rigdon, who had also been a minister, whose life had been dedicated to the Lord. Sidney was the Lord's servant also and had done good works. James, you are my servant. I've looked upon your works. I know thee. I accept all the good that you've done in my name in the past. Are you ready for more? It's like John the Beloved. I want to extend my mission. I want to do a greater work. Verse 8, Verily I say unto thee, Thine heart is now right before me at this time. And behold, I have bestowed great blessings upon thy head. Now verse 8 would be wonderful if it just said, Thine heart is right before me, and I've, blessed, and I've bestowed great blessings. But it's really weird the way it's phrased. Thine heart is now right before me at this time. And behold, it's, it's like, wow, two times in that verse. It's like he's being very clear right now. Your heart is good. Well, at this time. And, and really, instead of just, man, you've got a great heart. I mean, that's kind of what he'll say about Edward Partridge. He's just awesome. I mean, his heart is just well-made. Uh, it's consecrated. He's ready for this. James, right now you are. This is not your permanent condition, but at least at this very moment, at this time, right now, your heart's in a perfect place. And the Lord, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to, to completely throw James Cobble under the bus, because we're all James, okay? Anytime you see a quote-unquote villain in Scripture that frustrates you, it's typically frustrating because we see ourselves in him, okay? Uh, and I see myself here too. On my best days, do I promise to do certain things? to break bad habits, to, to develop good ones, to, to give. To... It's amazing what you can decide to do in your very best moments. When I used to speak at EFYs, it was always interesting to see youth like at the end like, I will never sin again. And you're like, good luck with that. Because <laughs> you're about to go back home to your old surroundings. It's one thing to come out of Babylon, be in Zion for a moment, have your sacred grove experience, but then have to go back home to climb the mountain like Nephi did and then go back down to the valley where Laman and Lemuel are waiting for you. Yikes. Uh, it, it is one, but the best definition I've ever heard of the word character is the ability to follow through with a decision after the emotion of making the decision has passed. Do you get that? It's a great definition. When we make a decision, it's usually a certain emotion, spirit-driven that, that, yes, it's going to happen. In fact, I, I joke that the seven months that I proposed to my wife, and uh, she just still wasn't sure, there was this amazing moment where just both of us were really overwhelmed by the Spirit and just, this is what God wants, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work, and yes, I'll marry you. And it was like, oh, I mean, just euphoria. And my wife and I always joke about this because after about a week, she hadn't said anything to me, but I knew that hadn't stuck. <laughs> I mean, it was like, yeah, I don't know what happened there, but that one didn't last. Um, again, no, no clarity, like, no, Jared, we're, we're officially unengaged. It was just, she knew it, I knew it, and it was just like, bummer. Well, at least she didn't break up with me. <laughs> We're not engaged, but I still have hope. Uh, it, it was just one of those interesting things where there was an emotion that, that made this decision, and, and then the emotion waned, and the decision kind of fell apart. Now, thankfully, 
when the, the true, not just this caught up in, the, in a moment, but a real change of heart and a conversion to one another, where we knew that this was God's will for us and we were excited to move forward. And it's been 21 years of, of wonderful marriage since. And even in, in hard times when emotion isn't carrying us through, character is. We're committed to one another. We're committed to our family. We're committed to the Lord. So, I, I, but it, the point I'm trying to make here with James is right now you've got this emotion and this desire and this commitment and you're telling Joseph, anything the Lord tells me through you, I'm going to do. Your heart right now in making that kind of a promise is exactly where it needs to be. I'm just hoping that your heart experiences a mighty change so that character will keep you through. I mean, remember Alma, Mr. Mighty Change himself, is the one who said, if you've ever felt to sing that song of redeeming love, your heart was right in that moment, can you feel so now? That's what the Lord's really after, a permanent change. Now, verse 9, the Lord is well aware of James's situation. Nevertheless, thou hast seen great sorrow, for thou hast rejected me many times because of pride and the cares of the world. So no wonder the Lord is able to be so specific in verse 8 about the condition of his heart. James has a track record, and the Lord is aware of it. As even when he starts to the verse with nevertheless, in 8 it was your heart's in the right place, and I'm blessing your, you know, bestowing blessings upon your head. Nevertheless, uh, before I you know, completely jump into, into euphoria, you've seen sorrow because you've rejected me. It was always pride and worldly cares. Actually, that brings us back to what we were talking about in section 38. Beware of pride, lest you be as the Nephites of old. Careful about proclaiming cash your king. Uh, become one. If you are not one, you are not mine. Can you imagine if James Covell had followed through when the Lord says to him, you, what, really, you'll do anything I ask? Then join the church and gather with the rest of us in Ohio. Because there, you'll be able to live the law of consecration. You will be endowed with power from on high. You want to overcome this habitual pride and worldliness that has brought you so much sorrow, in spite of your ministerial desires to serve and follow me, then come and commit, come and covenant, come and consecrate. Even this difficult command that God is giving him is meant for his own good. This will help you overcome yourself. That's what temple covenants are meant to do. Verse 10, but behold. See, he keeps swinging back and forth between the two sides. Verse 8, you're blessed. Verse 9, nevertheless, you got some issues. Verse 10, but good news. Behold, the days of thy deliverance are come. If thou wilt hearken to my voice which saith unto thee, Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on my name, and you shall receive my spirit, and a blessing so great as you never have known. What a beautiful promise in verse 10. Your days of deliverance, delivered from your own worst self. That's what repentance is. That's what being baptized and washing away your sins is for. But coming to me, especially as we gather to Ohio, Oh, the talk about deliverance from your lowest self. Talk about a blessing greater than anything you've ever seen. You've had a blessed life because you've been trying to bless others. That's the life of a clergyman. But you want something even better? Then join the fullness of the gospel. 
You see, that's what he hints at in verse 11. If thou do this, that's the second if we've seen in, in two different verses, right? If thou wilt hearken. Here, if thou wilt do this. Again, you see, think the Lord knows the end from the beginning. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm really thrilled and your heart's in the right spot that you committed to do anything I asked. And I'm crossing my fingers. I'm holding out hope. And if you'll follow through, you'll be amazed at what will come into your life. But knowing you, James, and the self-inflicted sorrow from your past track record, it's still an if. I, I hope the Lord looks at us and sees a when instead of an if. The character to follow through with our commitments. But for James in verse 11, if thou do this, I have prepared thee for a greater work. You've done great work, but now you can do greater work. Thou shalt preach the fullness of my gospel. To this point, you've been preaching my gospel in part. But now you'll have a fullness, which I have sent forth in these last days. The covenant which I have sent forth to recover my people, which are of the house of Israel. Powerful language. Covenants meant to recover. Remember we talked about this earlier, that when we talk about the restoration of fill in the blank, and we usually think the restoration of the gospel or the restoration of the church or the restoration of the priesthood. But section 84 is the one that says the restoration of my people. That's what the Lord is all about. That's the ends. Church and gospel and priesthood is just the means to get us there. So here, same thing. His covenant, what's it for? It's to recover my people. I got to bring them home. I mean, I do have 12 robes for my 12 sons. We just have to learn to share with each other. Recover my people. Verse 12, it shall come to pass that power shall rest upon thee. Power from on high. Believe me, you'll be endowed with it. Thou shalt have great faith. You've had faith. That's why you've given your life to me. But great faith is what I'm after. And I will be with thee and go before thy face. Verse 13, thou art called to labor in my vineyard and to build up my church, and to bring forth Zion, that it may rejoice upon the hills and flourish. I can picture James right there going, wait, wait, I, I thought that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. Oh, yes. And I accept it all. It's wonderful. There is so much more work to be done, though. Labor in my vineyard. Build up my church. Bring it forth. And not just church, Zion. You see how the one is more means to the end? I'm trying to build up my church so that it can ultimately bring forth Zion. Because that's what I want. One heart, one mind dwelling in righteous, no poor among them. And my Zion can then rejoice upon the hills. We're starting to climb. We're, we're aiming for the mountain of the Lord, right? We can flourish there. Verse 14, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Thou art not called to go into the eastern countries, but thou art called to go to the Ohio. I don't know what was drawing James eastward. But as the Lord is saying, we're going to gather with the saints. I want you to come gather with us. 15, inasmuch as my people shall assemble themselves at the Ohio, I have kept in store a blessing such as is not known among the children of men, and that shall be poured forth upon their heads. And from thence men shall go forth into all nations. We saw that back in section 38. As we are endowed with power from on high, then we can go out and preach the gospel. Endowment before mission. And that's the kind of blessing that the Lord has in store. This endowment of power. The gift that keeps on giving. 
the investment that never runs dry. Verse 16, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that the people in Ohio call upon me in much faith, thinking I will stay my hand in judgment upon the nations, but I cannot deny my word. Now, I've lost track already. Is this the third time or the fourth time where the Lord is responding to people's prayers? He's good like that, okay? But this is an interesting one. Remember, there are saints in Ohio. There's more there than there are back in New York and, and Pennsylvania. That's one of the reasons they're moving down there. It's all these new converts that uh, Oliver Cowdery and Parley P. Pratt and the other Lamanite missionaries met on their way down to Missouri. And, and Sidney Rigdon's old congregation, they're a good bunch of saints. They're awesome, okay? And they've been praying. They've joined the church. If asked, they, I'm sure they would have picked up and moved to New York. But, but it's the other saints that are being picked, told to pick up and move to, to join them. But kind of get a sense of what they must be asking for. In verse 16, the people in Ohio are calling upon God in faith. Here's why. Thinking I will stay my hand in judgment upon the nations. Remember, this is the, the voice of warning that's going forth to all nations. Remember the signs of the times and so on, destruction upon the wicked, and these wonderfully well-meaning, kind-hearted saints in Ohio are pleading with the Lord to be merciful. Please do not come down in judgment upon the nations. Now, what's wrong with that? That is a beautiful, righteous, kind-hearted, selfless desire. But what the Lord hints at at the end of verse 16, I think, points to the problem. You see, when he says, I, but I cannot deny my word. You see, this is a God of justice. We've already seen that he's a God of mercy, right? I will be merciful to your weakness. But mercy, remember the Book of Mormon describes it as the Lord can claim his rights of mercy. Mercy comes as a right but only when the demands of justice have been satisfied. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about mercy as a plant that has to grow out from the, cr uh, the cracks and crevices of, the, of the, mo the mountain, the rock of justice. Because if it just spreads through the marshlands of mere humanitarianism, then it becomes a noxious weed. You see, mercy cannot rob justice because then we don't learn anything. Well, we learn that God's a pushover and just put it on his tab and, and all is well. And that, that is not the kind of saints the Lord is trying to help us to become. And so on the one hand, good for you, saints of, of Ohio, that you, you want God to be merciful. But never ask him to be merciful at the expense of his justice. Now, how can he be both? He can be both through the atonement, he, where he faces justice and meets all of its demands so that he can thereby gain the rights of mercy to be merciful to us. But how do we balance justice and mercy? By following God's plan, which requires repentance. You see, by repenting, then I am honoring justice. I'm admitting that I fell short of God's law and that I deserve punishment. I am paying my respects to the law and to justice, even when in my weakness I broke it. But I'm not trying to, to change it. I'm not fighting against it. I, I'm, I've humbled myself and realized that it was right all along. It was me that was wrong. And as I'm repenting then, doing justice to justice, then the Lord can offer me mercy in its place. It is his atonement that meets the demands of justice. And it's my 
repentance that meets the demands of the atonement. So what's the Lord's solution then? People of Ohio, I can't do it your way. In spite of your much faith and in spite of your much mercy, you need to balance your mercy with justice and you can still get what you want. You can still have me stay my hand, but not in mercy divorced from justice. It's mercy having already met justice's demands. So you want this to happen? Then go cry repentance. Verse 17, wherefore lay to with your might, call faithful laborers into my vineyard that it may be pruned for the last time. And inasmuch as they do repent and receive the fullness of my gospel and become sanctified, then I will stay mine hand in, just, in judgment. So you see what, what the Lord is helping them understand there? You've got an amazing destination, Ohio Saints. I, I want to get there too. But we got to get there in the right way. There's no shortcut, okay? There's no Tower of Babel to just climb our way to heaven. You have to be lifted up in me as I was lifted up on the cross. So what we need to do, if you really want my hand to be stayed, then go preach the gospel. If you really want me to be merciful, then go preach to people my justice and my mercy so that they can repent. And then my hand will be stayed and it'll be stayed in the right way instead of the wrong way. Last year in the Book of Mormon, I tried to teach this, especially with the, the story of Abinadi and the wicked priests of Noah, because both Abinadi and the wicked priests wanted to comfort the people. They wanted to eliminate this gap between our beliefs and our behaviors, because that gap is filled with sin and guilt and, and bad feelings. And so what were the priests of Noah saying? Well, forget law. Let's just bag belief and bring it down to the, the level of behavior. And then there's nothing to feel bad about. We're not falling short of any line. And Abinadi was like, that, that doesn't work. That, that stain God's hand that way, that's robbing justice and denying who God really is. And really denying who we're supposed to become. So I, I respect your goal. I want to eliminate the guilt gap too. But the only real way to do it is to repent. We don't forget our beliefs. We repent of our behaviors. And by bringing that lower line up into line with the higher one, then again, there's no guilt and there's no sin. There's no sorrow there. But justice is satisfied. So same kind of thing is happening here with these saints. I also love, by the way, what he says at the end of verse 17. So often it's thrusting in sickles and, and reaping fields of grain but this one seems to be more a vineyard or uh, an orchard because he talks about pruning. And what's pruning all about? You see, there's only so much strength from the soil and from the sun. And if you got a million tiny little pieces of fruit all fighting over it, they're all going to be pretty small and insignificant. But if you prioritize, if you limit where your strength is being pulled, and you focus on those areas that matter most, on your maker and your ministry, instead of your means and your materialism, as David Whitmer was told. Or here for James Cobble, if you, if you don't allow God's strength to be pulled towards your pride or sucked into the cares of the world, imagine how much strength you will have to go build God's kingdom, to perform this greater work, to help Zion flourish upon the hills. That's what pruning is all about. And again, I think part of the law of consecration is to help prune back 
to cut off those other things that are sucking our strength if we really want to bring forth fruits meet for repentance then we've got to cut off prune back all the other fruits out there that are simply sapping our strength now with all that in mind verse 19 the lord continues wherefore so because of all i've said to this point go forth james crying with a loud voice saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand crying hosanna blessed be the name of the most high god this is your chance for a, a perpetual palm sunday to wave your palm branches and lay out your garments and cry hosanna blessed be the name of the most high god he is coming to his city we are preparing the world for that second coming verse 20 go forth baptizing with water preparing the way before my face for the time of my coming like i said this is always in second coming context for the time is at hand the day or the hour no man knoweth but it surely shall come and he that receiveth these things receiveth me and they shall be gathered unto me in time and in eternity so he's starting to come full circle he started at the beginning talking about will they receive me if so they will become my sons here if will you receive these things these commandments it comes from me will you act on this verse 23 then again it shall come to pass that on as many as ye shall baptize with water ye shall lay your hands and they shall receive the gift of the holy ghost and shall be looking forth for the signs of my coming and shall know me behold i come quickly even so amen oh if james cobble could have simply held on to that with both hands he had the 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 moment of clarity uh, the the depth of desire on that day joseph i'll do anything you ask i really wonder what he expected i wonder what he thought the lord would say was it some eastern mission like hey i've been a minister all these years i can go off on my own and make a great difference in the kingdom and spread this gospel but this call to to come and gather with the rest of these saints to pick up and leave really i don't know about that i've got kind of a comfortable existence with a congregation of people that have been listening to me for decades that's the real tragedy of section 39 and as we'll now see section 40 because as of january 5th 1831 james cavell is ready to go and as of january 6th the next day he's nowhere to be found like what where happened to what happened to our go-to guy james was ready to rock he didn't put his money where his mouth was he didn't follow through with his decision he didn't keep his covenant and that's what he had that's what he'd given he'd made a covenant with god now verse or section 40 three simple verses notice how the lord responds to this departure behold verily i say unto you that the heart of my servant james cavell was right before me for he covenanted with me that he would obey my word now does it make more sense that back in section 39 he in verse 8 he would say your heart is now right before me at this time you get the present tense heart is right in section 39 and in section 40 one of the saddest changes of verb tense in scripture his heart was right before me 
Now it's interesting that the sadness of that verb tense change is right next to a beautiful word, right. Your heart is right right now. Your heart was right yesterday. It really was. You weren't, this wasn't pre-planned prodigalism as Elder Maxwell once described it. This wasn't, oh, I'm, I'm going to say something and then I, I, I'm already planning not to follow through. It was, I'm going to do this. I really am. He wasn't tricking the Lord. But the natural man sure tricked him. He was on the right path. He was doing the right thing. And I don't want to take anything away from where he happened to be spiritually on January 5th. I think we can honor him for that. And I know the Lord honors us for our our best moments, but what a difference it would make if we held on to them, if we followed through, if our is didn't become a was, but became an always will be. That's what covenants are meant to do. That's what sacrifice helps reshape us into. That's what consecration and endowment with power from on high, all of this will help you accomplish it. Verse 2, the Lord then says, He received, past tense, the word with gladness, but straightway Satan tempted him, and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. Those were things the Lord saw coming too. Remember back in section 39, verse 9, the sorrows that had come to him many times for having rejected God. And what was causing him to reject God? The fact that he couldn't say no to his own pride or to the cares of the world. And with that in mind, go back to 40, verse 2. The fear of persecution. Is, is that pride in a part that, that brings that fear? I'm scared to death of what, they're, what people are going to think of me. They're going to look down upon me. Believe me, the reputation that the early, saint, or the early church had, the, the story that was going through the newspapers about Joe Smith and a gold Bible and stone spectacles and everything else, newspaper editors purposely tried to make Mormonism a laughingstock. I remember reading the, the, the journal of one convert that basically he was writing letters to old friends saying, please don't make fun of me for joining this church. Uh, I, I didn't intend to. I just happened to read the Book of Mormon and pray about it, and dang it, now it's too late. I know that it's true. Uh, I suggest you do the same. But it, it, there was this concern. It was pride speaking. It was that same early American upward mobility, and I care intensely what people think about me. Now, ah, it's going to be a problem. And is that part of it for James Covell? Fear of persecution. I, people are going to look down on me and think less of me. And then the other, which was clear in section 39. Cares of the world. You care too much about what you stand to lose and don't think enough about what, spiritually speaking, you stand to gain. The riches of eternity are mine to give. It's interesting also, and we've talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares already. Well, here's the parable of the sower, where the sower goes forth to sow and scattering these seeds and some on the, the wayside that doesn't grow anything, but some among stony ground. And what happens there? They straightway spring up so excited, I've got some earth and I've hit some soil and I'm, I'm springing up. That's the hint at the beginning of verse 2. Straightway, he received the word with gladness. Just, I'm, I'm all in. Uh, tell me anything the Lord wants me to do, Joseph, and I'm your man. This is a plant that sprung up. But, how does the parable continue? On that rocky soil, 
when the sun starts to beat down upon it, because it has no depth of earth, it went all for the upward growth. It didn't go downward to try to sink a taproot down into where it could find an actual source of living water. And so when the heat of the sun, sound like persecution? When that started to beat down upon him, it shriveled, it died. So that's a one type of soil that James is, is planting on. The soil of his soul was stony. But then the other, the cares of the world, because that's the third type of soil. That's the thorny ground. Because what's interesting about the plant that grows among thorns is it's still alive. It doesn't, it doesn't get beaten down by the sun. It survives. The problem is it just doesn't bear fruit. Why? Because of all of these thorns and weeds around it, that is what is sucking the strength of the soil in other directions. Remember we just talked about pruning? Weeding does the same kind of thing. There's only so much strength in the soil. I want it all to go to my precious plant so that it can bring forth fruit. I don't want it leached off by lesser plants. I don't want the thorns to get to it. So it's interesting that in verse 2, you see James Cobble struggle with these two types of soil, both the stones that make it so that you don't tap into living water and it exposes you to the heat of a persecuting sun and being sown among thorns that are pulling strength in, in lesser directions, the cares of the world, causing him to reject the word. Wherefore, verse 3, he broke my covenant and it remaineth with me to do with him as seemeth me good. Amen. Now, please don't pump your fist and, and give out a wicked cackle and like, go get him, God. Go get James Covell for breaking his word. The beauty of verse 3 in all of its gentleness is the Lord, A, recognizing what James had done wrong. He broke my covenant. My covenant, which is always meant to recover people. I made a promise with James that I would recover him that I would bring him into my embrace, help him consecrate, help wean him off the cares of the world. But he broke it. That relationship, and that's what covenants always are, is now broken on his part, not on mine. I cannot recover him the way I had intended. But saints, please leave that to me. You don't have to search him out and hunt him down and, and rub salt into the wound and say, well, how dare you turn your back on us? Just leave that to me. It remaineth with me to do with him as seemeth me good. I think we can be so much more gentle with people who, who make covenants or commitments and then lack the character to follow through. I think we can be much more gentle with people who struggle or stray who fear persecution or are drawn to the cares of the world or for whatever reason have decided not to follow us to the Ohio, who don't want to be part of the Zion we are trying to bring to the hills to help flourish. Love them, be patient, pray for their deliverance in a way that honors both justice and mercy, continue to reach out to them in love, and leave the judgment to God. It's not, we, it, he has relieved us of that burden. And I, for one, am very grateful for that. Now, as we conclude today, if I could just say 
one last thing about this whole concept of of doing what we said we would do. I remember one area on my mission, uh, a greenie and I were sent in to, to whitewash an area, as they say. Just two brand new missionaries starting from scratch. And we didn't know a soul in the area. I didn't even know where the church was. God has an interesting sense of humor because our, my first week there, he put someone in my path that I approached and talked to and and they were like, yeah, I'd love to come to your church. Where is it? And I'm like, I don't even know. I, I hope I can find it by Sunday. And by the time I found out where the church was, I don't think I ever met another person in there that just asked me out of the blue, hey, where's your church? I'd love to come. But I remember all we, were do- all we could do was street contact and tracked and, and find, find, find was the order of the day because we had no one to teach. And I remember one week, we just pounded the pavement and gave it all we had to try to set up appointments for the following week. I mean, it's rough when you're starting from scratch and you you look at your, you're like, what are we going to do tomorrow as we're doing the nightly planning? And it's completely blank. We have no set appointments. And it's like, okay, well, where do we want to track in the morning? And where do we want to street contact in the afternoon? And where do we, that's all we got. But I remember after a couple weeks of just pounding the pavement, we looked ahead and the following week we had 30 set appointments. It's set. Like they were on the calendar. So-and-so said we could come. They said that they'd be there. And we were so excited. This was some serious work put in, and now we're going to be able to rejoice in the fruits of our labors. Well, on Monday, we started, okay, we're doing other things and whatever, but there's our appointment. We show up, and they weren't there. So we changed plans, and we contact around there and whatever. And, but a couple hours, just hold on, don't lose hope. A couple hours, we got another set appointment. And that one fell through also. To fallarse means to, to fail. And so we called them fallos. Uh, that when somebody said they'd be there and they made the appointment and then they don't show up to their own appointment, nos fallaron. They failed us. They, they, it was a fail. Well, by the following Sunday, the end of that week of missionary labor, we had just had our 29th fail. 29 of the 30 appointments that we had set, they all fell through. We only had one left. And by then, it had become a comedy of errors. I'm like, Elder, we got one more fail. We can break a wreck and have a perfect streak of 30 out of 30. Just trying to, I don't know, lighten the mood. And sure enough, we broke the record. We, we hit 30 out of 30. Or more accurately, zero out of our 30 appointments were actually there when they said they would be. That was heartbreaking for us. Honestly, I thought it would have been better for them just to admit from the start I'm really not that interested. But to get our hopes up, and who knows, maybe they had high hopes too, and then fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused them to reject us. Who knows? I'll leave that to God, right? That, that is the, the way we're supposed to approach it. But that is a devastating thing. It was interesting that during that time period, Elder F. Burton Howard of the 70 came to my mission and toured it and taught us missionaries and inspired us, amazing member of the 70. And shortly thereafter, he spoke in general conference. And he actually spoke about keeping our commitments. I don't know if he had checked my, my missionary planning guide and, and realized what, what we were up against. Or just simply in his uh, tour of people all around the world, he realized, man, it's easy to say you'll do something and a lot harder to actually do it. And in a conference talk that I will always remember, he told a story of him and his wife and his small child on a car trip 
and his son was was overtired and was just getting fussy and both parents knew if he'll just sit still long enough and close his eyes he'll fall asleep and all will be well for all of us so how do we get him to sit still and close his eyes well stroke of genius they said son i got an idea let's play a game let's play hide and go seek now this son was small enough to, to not realize hide and go seek in a moving vehicle this isn't doesn't sound like much of a game but mom and dad said, tell you what, you be it and we'll hide, okay? So when you're it, you need to close your eyes and count to 10 and we'll hide. And I'll bet you'll be smart enough to find us. And this son was so excited. Okay, yeah, let's play, let's play. And so uh, he sits in the back, in the middle seat and closes his eyes and counts to 10. And brother and sister uh, Howard just kind of lean towards the windows in their respective uh, seats. And at, when the son gets to 10, he bounds over the front. This is probably before seatbelt laws. Uh, jumps up the, for the front seats and looks like, I found you. And they're like, oh, you're good. Let's play again. And they played again. And the same kinds of results. Well, parents realized he's, ju he's just got to sit still and keep his eyes closed longer than that. And he's, he'll be out. And so they said, okay, son, let's play again. But this time, oh, we have a really good hiding place. It's just going to take us a long time to get there. Probably longer than you even have time to count. So tell you what, you sit in the back and don't count at all. One, just close your eyes and be as still as you can. And when we finally get to our hiding place, we'll call you and you can come search for us. Okay? He's like, okay, that sounds good. So he closes his eyes. He sits still, closes his eyes and Minutes pass as brother and sister Howard are giving each other silent high fives and trading looks of, of accomplishment. We did it because he'd been out for a while. Well, as the, as the minutes continue to pass and they're just rejoicing in this welcome silence, they begin to whisper congratulations to one another. But the whispers are then interrupted with a sob as a small voice from the back seat speaks up and says, you didn't call me and you said you would. Elder Howard said in that conference talk, that was a devastating condemnation. You didn't call me and you said you would. He said, my wife and I realized that day that we could never play that game again. My dear friends, that's a game that none of us can afford to play. To hear the Lord say to us, you didn't follow me and you said you would. Or in the context of consecration, you said you would give me all that you are, but where are you? You didn't consecrate and you said you would. You didn't help me recover my people and you said you would. Before we came to this earth, we made covenants with God. We accepted his plan. We honored his son. We followed him. And our hearts were right in that moment. And then we came to earth. And persecution with all of its fear and pride and its hold upon our heart the cares of the world begin to distract our attention.
Will we do what we said we would do? Will we become who we said we would become? Will we follow who we promised to follow? I am grateful that Jesus did everything he said he would, and he is inviting us to do the same.